Postcards from a Dying World, the podcast. For more than a decade, I've reviewed over 1,000 books that are mostly science fiction, horror, and bizarro. This feed will feature bonus audio I have produced over the years, as well as a monthly digest of reviews based on what I've read each month, plus the occasional bonus material about my own fiction. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to Postcards from a Dying World. Uh, this is becoming, this is the second annual Best of Horror Halloween episode. Last year, uh, Desmond Reddick of Dread Media, Mother Horror, Sadie, Sadie Mother Horror, uh, James Chambers joined me to do Best Horror Novels. This year we're doing the best or our favorite uh, horror short stories and I've pulled together, I shouldn't say best, I should say favorite. I've pulled together a panel of people that I've been thinking about for a year that th- these are the people that I wanted to have on this particular panel. So I've thought about this long and hard. And one of the people that I love talking about horror short stories with is uh, returning to the podcast is Laird Barron, who is an award-winning author of many books. My favorite being the Isaiah Coleridge trilogy, which I've covered on this podcast before. So if you want to hear more about my opinion on those books, you can go back and hear Laird and I nerd out about that. So welcome to the show, Laird. Thank you. And um, also joining me, uh, I'm very honored to have her for the first time on the show is Mary San Giovanni, who is also an award-winning horror and thriller writer. My favorite being the Hollower trilogy uh, was is one that um, I really, really, really love. And her Kathy Ryan series uh, is another good one. I love Chills, it was a great book. Um, and she is a one-time co-host of The Horror Show with Brian Keene and also Cosmic Shenanigans and currently The Ghost Writers Podcast. I wanted to have Mary on because uh, she constantly uh, basically had the best, most thought, thought out opinions on horror fiction uh, on The Horror Show. And so, um, and, and where she got the nickname, The Professor. So uh, we wanted to have Mary on here too. But if we're going to have a professor, we should also have a judge, right? And so um, one of my longest running friends in the world, 30 years we've been friends, uh, Mark Rothenberg is the guy, when I nerd out about horror fiction, he's the guy that I do it with. We were housemates um, probably 30 years ago when he was in college and I was in my gap year. And I remember distinctly having a huge argument about whether the the further books of Necroscope beyond book three were worth a shit. So, and well, we both agreed on that, but I think it was whether whether three was worth a shit still is what we argued a lot about. Agree. Yeah. And so joining us is Mark Rothenberg representing the readers. So um, a serious horror nerd. I'm uh, really glad to have Mark here. Welcome to the show, Mark. And- hey, thanks. Really appreciate it. All right, so we're going to start with five honorable mentions, and I'm going to do my honorable mentions first, and then uh, we'll go Mary, Laird, and Mark for the honorable mentions. With the honorable mentions, these are stories that almost made the list, didn't quite make the list, but the criteria that I use for picking my list are my favorite stories, not necessarily the best stories, or um, some of them, like, for example, you'll see, like, definitely... I think there's better stories by a given author, but I've picked one that hit me personally the hardest. And a good example of that is the first of my honorable mentions, which is Buried in the Sky by John Shirley. 
John Shirley is one of my absolute favorite writers on the planet. So it's funny that he only gets into the honorable mentions, but um, this is a tough list. And Buried in the Sky is a great combination of all of his skills. It's a Lovecraftian story, but it's also a little bit cyberpunk and sci-fi. And it's collected in Living Shadows, but I believe it was originally published in Weird Book um, magazine. But Buried in the Sky takes place, it's about... Um, like a, a very tall skyscraper city type um, future at like living space that's supposed to be getting around climate change. And then there's also Lovecraftian gods. And it's a really great story that combines Lovecraftian stuff with cyberpunk. So I really love Buried in the Sky by John Shirley. Um, he is still pumping out short story collections. His newest one, Feverish Stars is great. And he continues to write uh, political and awesome science fiction. So that uh, Buried in the Sky by John Shirley, my number 15. Number 14 is a story from 1928. It's The Miracle of the Lily by Claire Winger Harris. And I know nothing about this author. I just know that this story was in The Future's Female, edited by Lisa Yazik, who um, this is a collection of the best pulp era science fiction written by women. And this story is a post-apocalyptic story about human beings eradicating insects and how the whole ecosystem falls apart. And it was written in 1928. It's fucking incredible um, for 1928. And this entire book is really great. I know I'm biased because Lisa Yazik has been on my other podcast, De uh, Dickheads, like six times. And I love Lisa, but this book is really great. And it's the reason why she got on my radar was this awesome book. And we will have another story from that on my list. But uh, that's Miracle of the Lily. Uh, the next one is a novella I'm not going to say too much about is Far Side of the De Cadillac Desert with Dead Folks by Joe R. Lansdale. I, it's iffy because it's a novella and I wasn't sure. If, if novellas counted, but it was in a short story collection, uh, Book of the Dead, that I first discovered it. It was the first time I ever wrote Joe R. Lansdale. It blew my mind. Um, I was in eighth or ninth grade when I read it, and I was like, oh, wait, people from Texas can write kick-ass horror, too. Um, and so I really loved that. The next one, Laird, I might have to ask Laird to comment on it because he wrote the introduction to this collection, which is Philip Fricazzi's um, Behold the Void, and the story is Failsafe, which I'm sure there's better. Fricazzi has written more intense, more like, I don't know, just this story. It's very simple horror story that just captured me, and it has white knuckle moments. It has little twists and turns, and so, and it just really kicked my butt, and it's the one that made me say, Fricazzi is an author I want to watch, and follow was that story in particular. So that's fail safe. And then my last honorable mention, and then we get to move on, is The Storm by David Morell, uh, who's the author of First Blood uh, and Creepers and a lot of great stuff. And he's really underrated as a horror short story author. He has a couple classics. Um, he has that one about art. I can't remember the title, but Anyways, the storm is super simple, and I think it would make an incredible episode of an anthology series like Creepshow or Masters of Horror. The, it's a very simple concept. It's just 
a guy driving and there's a storm that keeps coming and he can't outrun the storm and he keeps trying to outrun it and it never stops coming and it's really simple but gosh it's really well done so that's uh the storm by david morell and that is the last of my honorable mentions mary would you like to do your honorable mentions sure uh now the criteria that i used for picking both the honorable mentions and my top 10 stories uh, I try to find that sort of weird meeting place between stories that I thought had a significant impact on the genre, but more so stories that had a significant impact on me as a writer. And some of these I read long before I started writing. I read them as, as a reader. But I think that uh, overall, they're my favorites because they less, left this sort of lasting impression on me in terms of what I would want to do someday when I'm a grown-up writer, you know, <laughs> that, that I, the things that I would like to be able to do with my fiction, I feel that these stories do, either being particularly shocking or just, you know, beautifully written or uh, emotionally, like very impactful emotionally, that kind of thing, you know, just, just stories that I felt just kind of got me in the feels or got me in the gut one way or another. So my honorable mentions, uh, I start backwards. Number five is A Rose for Emily by William Faulkner. I read this in college and it was, it struck me immediately as a precursor to Psycho. I mean, it was, it was the story Psycho before Psycho, which I thought was kind of cool. It's basically about this, this old woman, Emily, who is sort of a, a spinster type and lives in her house. And it's told from the point of view of the townspeople, kind of like, um, I, I can't think of the, the, there's another story like that where it's told from sort of the outside. And it's told about Emily and what people thought of her and how when, well, see, I'm trying to, trying to avoid uh, spoilers, but at some point they have an occasion to learn more about who Emily really is. And the truth is a lot more disturbing and tragic than what they thought. Mm. Uh, number four is The Monkey's Paw by W.W. Jacobs. This story, I think, <clears throat> if, if you are remotely superstitious in any way, or if you are, you know, if you, if, if you have any kind of inclination, I think, in any way toward the supernatural, I think this, this story can't help but but move you in some way, because it is, it, it, it takes a basic human need. I mean, from, from the time we're little kids, even when we're, even when we're taught to blow out birthday candles, we're, we're always told to make a wish, you know, make a wish and you, you, you throw a penny into a well, you know, make a wish on the first star you see at night, you know, make a wish when you blow your candles out. Making a wish is something that we, we associate with uh, a sort of childlike innocent desire for something. And this story, it just messes with that entirely. It, it just, it, it finds the, the truly horrific outcome of just about any wish that you can think of in, in its suggestiveness of what, you know, in, in the three wishes that are made and granted in this particular story. The next one, uh, number three, I picked The Damn Thing by Ambrose Bierce. And I picked this one 
partly because when I read it, I was young enough to giggle at the fact that they used damned in the title, but mostly it was because, <laughs> <laughs> mostly it was because I, I thought that it was the first time that I had really read horror and recognized that you could incorporate humor in it and not have that humor detract from something truly disturbing. And uh, the humor part, I think, is more in the um, the inquest that uh, begins the story and ends the story, more or less, because the story of the damned thing is testimony given at um, at this dead man's uh, inquest by the the men that are, you know, sort of trying to determine cause of death. And there is a little bit of humor in it, but there's also this underlying horror not just of uh, that what you can't see can hurt you, but also how stubborn people are and willing to cover up something even even if the truth is obvious. And I, I always found that like a, a really sort of clever way of uh, portraying horror on, on a multiple level, you know? And, and speaking of multiple levels, number two is, <laughs> and. Again, like like David, I'm not sure if this is a novella. I don't think it is. I think it actually falls short word count wise of a novella, but it's Mrs. God by Peter Straub. Uh, I love Peter's work. I would like to believe that I'm smart enough to get all of it, but I'm not. <laughs> um, there, there are some things that, because I, I know that Peter found Robert Aikman to be an influence and Robert Aikman's work is incredibly subtle. Uh, we'll it be is coming that, back to Aikman in the, in, uh, the list. Oh, good, good. Because I mean, I, I like Aikman's work, but it is very subtle, and it is it is more of the suggestion of something that is wrong. It's it's you know what it is. It's that feeling when you can't quite put your finger on it. You know something's bothering you, but you're not quite sure what it is. Sometimes that's worse than a horror that you, you can confront because it's a lingering kind of thing. And Mrs. God is that kind of a story. Uh, it's basically about a. a I would say a writer's retreat, but I believe there are other creatives there and about the deconstruction of a man uh, who really just is both unwilling and in some ways unable to recognize the limitations that are ultra, ultimately detrimental to him. Um, and then of course, number one, I think I, I mentioned it before is the lottery by Shirley Jackson. This was the first story I'd ever read that had a level of brutality in it that I didn't know that you could really put into fiction. I mean, I read it probably in, in school. Uh, I'm trying to think the first time I read it might've been high school maybe. Um, and a lot of times, you know, you read stuff and it's like, oh, this is this is for school. How good could it be? And I read this, and I was like, wow, this, this is a horror story, you know? And and it was, and it's a horror story with a level of violence that is both somehow graphically horrific and yet literary and subtle and, and done not just for the gratuitous use of violence, but to really put something across. And again, this is another story that I think um, portrays a certain stubbornness of the human spirit that um, in some ways in horror is a good thing, but in this particular way in horror is a bad thing. That inability to 
Buck traditions. And having, you know, come from a, an a Irish Catholic background, you know, Italian and Irish Catholic background, the idea of tradition is a big deal. Um, both uh, more, maybe more so on the Italian side than the Irish side, but, but I, I mean, I was raised with traditions on both sides and the thought that a tradition, something that you've always trusted to be okay. And your parents have always trusted to be okay. And your grandparents have always trusted and all of your neighbors have always trusted to be okay. That maybe it's not okay. Uh, is, is both illuminating and, and a little scary. And, and then to find out that it can be outright, not just not okay, but outright destructive and violent to your own community, I think was, it was very eye-opening. So those are my honorable mentions. All right, Laird, you're up next. All right. Well, thank you for that. That was great. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to keep it pretty brief uh, since this is the honorable section for me. Um, my criteria overall, a couple of things. Uh, one uh, is I realized that it's, as you have said, a couple times now, it, it really isn't a best of list. It is a representative uh, list. I actually like how David Hartwell and Catherine Kramer have always talked about their, and Gardner Desois talked about their best of the years. The best that we have read this year that we could get a hold of and 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 put in front of you. There's it's a snapshot uh, because I realize that there's so many authors. Mm. There's no Lucia Shepard on my list. There's no uh, Peter Straub on my list. They belong on every list. So what this is is a list of things that have affected me that are representative of things. Also, I wanted to enlarge with, with at least a handful of my selections, uh, the idea of what horror can do or, or how it can manifest, because this is sort of a recommendation kind of a panel as opposed to, nope, these are the, these are, this is set in stone. These are the, this is the Bible. No, this is just, I, I'd like to demonstrate, hey, with a couple of my picks here and there that I, I think this is horror as well. Uh, and the third is, that kind of constrained me a little bit as I know a lot of people in the business. I, yeah. I don't know anybody on this list very well at all. I, I may have, been, I may have to, Michael Shea is the exception, uh, but I'm damn well going to make the exception for him. So there's no, there's no John Langan on this list. There's no yeah. Brian Evanson on this list. There are people that I've just, I feel like I'm probably too close to that probably deserve to be on the list. So with that. Um, yeah. I broke I that rule a little bit. But I will say, uh, onto what you were saying, I, I I made a list of the authors I couldn't believe were not in mine. Right. You, Laird, um, Harlan Ellison, Richard Matheson, Charles Beaumont, Dennis Atchison, Poppy Z. Bright. I, like, afterwards, when I realized that those names weren't on there, it was just like, whoa. Well, right. Yeah. And my list became much easier for me because <laughs> I was, I wrote this list several times, actually. And once I, realize this is not a best of as much as it is these are great stories but you know what ask me next week and i have 15 different stories it became a lot easier uh, but without without further delay yes five, sorry <laughs> um there are more things uh by borges uh, which you can find uh actually most of these you can find them i think online uh if, if you poke around but uh it was re it was published in 75 uh it appeared in the book of was collected in the book of sand um and it's basically and i'm not sure whether it's sarcastic or not but it's essentially borges doing his riff on lovecraft it's a re it's a response to lovecraft's indescribable horrors and i won't say much more about that but it's just it's basically uh back in the days when people cared about such things 
friend of the a friend of the POV character uh, has has passed on, and there's some changes being made to the house that he had made for him, and the POV character doesn't like it, and especially when he goes there and finds out that there are very very strange alterations being made, uh, and then as they say, the murders began. Uh, number four, the Circular Valley, Paul Bowles. Now Paul Bowles. Very few people, as with Borges, you know, you're not going to get anybody thinking these guys are horror writers. Uh, but I think Paul Bowles in particular, for me, uh, is more of a horror writer in the sense that he evokes the horrific, much like Cormac McCarthy would be another example, than almost any intentional or, or genre branded horror author. Uh, and The Circular Valley is one of the few, and I, ha I have not read all of Paul Bowles, but I have read a slew of Paul Bowles short fiction and this is the most overtly supernatural story of his that I've that, that I've encountered uh and basically it just takes place up in the mountains and it's one of my favorite kinds of stories you don't see enough of it um it's the it's the uh, genius loci story the spirit of the place uh and there is a being it's this ancient being uh, you get the sense that it's probably not necessarily uh, sort of like a, you know, a non-material incorporeal creature that can inhabit uh, other beings and control them and experience uh, their life and their deaths. And it ends up encountering, uh, it kind of haunts this old abandoned ruins of a monastery and it takes a liking to a mortal uh, human who shows up with her lover. Uh, they're having an affair and uh, it learns of treachery and heartbreak. And I think it's just a, fa it's a fascinating uh, literary example of horror. Leads into number three. Uh, I think this is a time-honored classic. Uh, I'm not sure how many people consider it horror. I certainly do. A Good Man is Hard to Find by Flannery O'Connor. <laughs> and by the way, you, you're going to get the Paul Bowles story, The Circular Valley, uh, uh, in The Delicate Prey. Uh, that's an easy that's an easy collection to pick it up in. Uh, so A Good Man is Hard to Find. It's going to be in her one of her major collections. It's, it's online. Uh, and I guess I would characterize that as a reason I picked it is it's a super example of uh, the evil that men do uh, and, the, and that women do. And it also is really an instructive that there are different gradations of, of evil uh, and, and how basically if evil is sort of this stream or a river, it's this raw almost pr primal force. Uh, it also has branches and tributaries that are not always apparent as being, as stemming from the, the main body of it. Uh, and, and how ultimately though, they all, they all um, curve back into the, into the central body of it. Uh, that's one of my favorite stories. I think it's, it's beautifully written and it's, it's just utterly chilling and it's almost banal treatment of uh, a massacre. Uh, the Bloody Chamber, Angela Carter. Uh, I love Angela Carter. You know, when I was younger, I loved fairy tales. As an adult, uh, I am less sanguine about the endless redoing of fairy tales. I think it's easy target to try to, to rewrite Rumpelstiltskin, but it's hard to pull it off. Angela Carter, I think, not to pun but she wrote the book on no I'll, I'll show you how you re, how you redo fairy tales the bloody chamber uh, is my favorite of these because bluebeard i think ostensibly it's you know it, it, it it's a tale about 
a woman uh, and, and, the, and the terrors that, that men inflict on women. But it also appealed, you know, to me as a child uh, when I read Bluebeard the first time. So essentially, it is a really primal uh, type of horror story because it speaks to anyone who is powerless or has less power than, than their provider. Uh, and number one, I went with The Lake by Tanana Reeve Du. Uh, you can find this in uh, Ghost Summer, a uh, collection that came out a few years ago, and I reviewed it. I won't say a lot about this one, but essentially the setup is a teacher takes some summer classes down in Florida around, uh, uh, the whole collection is, is, is centered around, or most of the collection is centered, centered in a certain area in, in Florida, Grace Lake, I believe it's called. And this story is a story of transformation. It's a story of feminine rage. It's a story of being an outsider, even if uh, you may have roots in an area. Uh, and I think that those all, there's a certain alchemy that, that do pulls off almost every story that she writes. She, she writes about tradition and yet the, the negative aspects that tradition is sort of a neutral term and you make of it what you will. There are good traditions, there are bad traditions and they have consequences. Uh, and the lake is one of her finest, uh, and most overtly monsters. She does a lot of ghost stories. This one sort of melds the ghost story, the monster story, the creature from the Black Lagoon uh, is, is peeping from behind the reeds in this one. And uh, that's my list. Yeah, she's an author I've definitely had on my radar that I've been wanting to read. I haven't yet. She's okay. exemplary. Yeah, representing uh, while his Minnesota Vikings are either winning or losing, I don't know. But... They're not doing good, but it's all right. <laughs> okay. Uh, Mark Rothenberg, give us your honorable mentions. All right. First, the criteria. Uh, I, there are some stories on here. I, I would say the majority of my stories all throughout are older stories. And one of my primary criteria, whether it's better, my favorite songs, my favorite books, my favorite movies, is the ability to just reread these over and over, re-see the movie, re-listen to the song, and never be bored by them. And one of the major criteria I have is, I mean, David, I don't know if he remembers this about me, but if I'm reading a book and at some point I get bored by it, I'll just put that book down. I want to be entertained primarily. Yes, I want to think about it. And, and so you might not see a whole lot of social commentary in my favorites because it, I want to, again, be entertained. And there are, again, favorite books of mine that have social commentary, but it's more about what grabs me. And, and to be honest with you, sadly, with the career I have as a judge, I've seen a lot of real horror in the world. Um, so I kind of harken back to when I was a kid and, and the kind of things that I did love. Like, you know, a lot of my introduction to short stories was Charles Beaumont, was, was uh, you know, stuff from The Twilight Zone, from, from Alfred Hitchcock Presents. And, and that kind of started me on, on this whole journey. So that being said, uh, like Laird, I, I kind of stayed away from putting a Laird Baron story on here, although I will say I'm a huge fan of Shiva, Shiva Open Your Eye. I, I think that's a fantastic story. And I know that I remember reading a long time ago that that was what your first sale or right. something like that. But I, I love that. I mean, I'm a huge mythos sort of sort of guy. I love the cosmic core. That being said, I'll just jump right into it. You'll notice a lot of my picks have to do with two things, usually children or body horror. Those things just really kind of resonate with me. It's a little weird. All right, which starts with number five. I remember reading this when I was very young. It was a paperback <coughs> in, in my school library. 
uh, and then I've discovered it's incredibly hard to find, which is a, a, a story called The Little Girl Eater uh, by a guy named Septimus Dale, who I know nothing about. I've tried to figure out who this guy is. I'm not it's sure probably that it's a not. pseudonym. Uh, yeah, I'm thinking it is a pseudonym. And I actually have some suspicions because the story does have sort of a, a Raul Dahl sort of ending to it. Um, this is, uh, it's in a book called Pan's Fourth Book of Horror Stories, which is a British anthology. I try to reread all of these stories in the past several weeks. This one I could not find. This one I actually had to listen to a podcast where someone read it. Um, and it, it still stuck with me. It's a pretty easy setup. Uh, in the first moments of the story, you realize there's a man stuck under a pier uh, at a beach. And uh, this family is coming to the beach to visit. And it's sort of how he's found by a little girl and, and how that plays out. And again, it does have that Raul Dahl sort of punch at the end. I don't want to say anymore. It's really a short story. It's probably four pages long, but, but well worth it. Um, and while I said a lot of my stories are older. This oh, this one's, one's not. modern. <laughs> yeah, this one's modern, which is The Third Bear by Jeff Vandermeer. I love Jeff's stuff. Uh, the Southern Reach trilogy, but even going back to Finch and, and some of his other stuff. Uh, this book or this story about a small village who in a medieval village, it seems like, who's terrorized by the third bear. Why is it the third bear? Well, because there were two other bears that terrorized in that season. Uh, and it might not be a bear. It might be something else. And this this story actually edges into cosmic horror um, in an unexpected way. I didn't expect it to go there when I first read this. I think it's available on the internet. I think he might have even have it on his website. I'm not sure. Again, I just sort of love that. I love that setting. I love that the idea of a small village, a small community dealing with a problem that ends up being much bigger than what it seems to be, right? They all think it's a bear. They send a bunch of people out to kill the bear. And it doesn't go so well. Um, number three, Casting the Runes by uh, M.R. James. This is, I was introduced to this when I was a little kid. I, I saw the adaption, which is Night of the Demon. Um, still, in my opinion, just a great story. It, it, you know, it's got that revenge concept to it, but it also has that supernatural. And, and I read this probably when I was maybe 12 and, and it just stuck with me. A lot of these stories are just, are just that. If you haven't read it, I'm sure you guys have read it, but all the people watching maybe haven't read it. Uh, definitely worth a read. Involves curses, witchcraft. Just, just good. Number two, um, The Events at Parath Farm by T.E.D. Klein. Uh, not we're, Ted Klein, T.E.D. Klein. We're going to talk more about him in the top 10 for sure. Okay, then I won't talk about him, but this is this is square in the mytho, the Cthulhu mythos, cosmic horror sort of way, so much so that uh, self-referential to the mythos. As a matter of fact, the 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 main character is a, is a teacher who's gone out to stay at this farm to prepare for the upcoming term, and he's reading various books, and he talks about the king in yellow he even talks about supernatural horror and literature the hp lovecraft uh essay uh and in in typical mythos fashion he kind of digs into something he's not supposed to and perhaps unleashes uh horror upon the world but it's but the way it's written uh 
being a new cat owner who's never owned cats before, uh, <laughs> it explains the behavior of cats to me uh, a little bit now. Now I understand. Um, I kind of wonder if there's cosmic horn in the cat that lives in my house. And my number one, uh, and it, it matches up with Mary's number one, which is The Lottery uh, by Shirley Jackson. I read this probably when I was in fifth grade after we watched the short movie of it. It's uh, rereading it. And I probably have only read it twice since then, right? But but rereading it, it's it's easy that you're taught in school that it's about scapegoats and it's about this community and, and sort of violence. But rereading it, the line that sticks with me is lottery in June, corn heavy, corn be heavy soon. It almost deals with that, not cosmic horror, but you know, this the, the idea of the sacrifice, the idea of it's a little bit deeper than. It's hard to say it's a little deeper than other Shirley Jackson stuff because I think Shirley Jackson stuff is really deep in many ways. But but to me, it I reread it with a different eye to it in the past couple of weeks. And uh, again, it's just fantastic. Not to say, by the way, I've been you see a pen in my hand. I've been taking notes of everyone's stories. And Mary, I might just be in love with you because those stories are all fantastic. Uh, they are Rose for Emily. Rose for Emily just missed my list. I love that story. The end story. where where you learn more about Emily. It's fantastic, fantastic story. Great story. Well, you guys have a mutual uh, listing, which means that we have the awkward thing of when we start number ten, which is normally in the numbers, we're going to start with Mary. However, her number ten is high on Mark's list. So okay. Mary, can you tell us what your number 10 is? And then we're going to go to Laird because we have to talk about that story later. Sure. My number 10 was I have no mouth and I must scream by Harlan Ellison. Right. So you and Mark are definitely on a similar page. Uh, Mark has that higher on his list. So we will come back to Harlan. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we have another science fiction writer representing with Laird with your number 10. Right, the science fiction writer being Barry Malsberg, uh, and the story in question is called Transfer, which I don't know where it originally appeared. I know it's around 1957, 59, somewhere in there. You can find it, though, probably have to use the Wayback Machine or something, but you, it was pub, uh, reprinted by Ellen Datlow. Oh, it must be 15 years ago now or 16 years ago in sci-fiction. Um, it was one of her weekly, they would do an original and then do a weekly reprint. Malsberg also, uh, I didn't realize this, but one of my favorite films, one of my formative films, uh, influential on my writing was Phase Four. And it, yeah, I have that. I've actually, one of my uh, colleagues sent me, he goes, oh, I, I said, yeah, I've, I've never read it. I've just watched it. And he sent me that recently. But Malsberg knows horror. Uh, Malsberg, mm. I'll tell you what, there's, some, there's something... Because I, I don't know how much I really want to go on and on about each story, but I just make general comments, maybe that if it seems appropriate. Uh, there, not to say that you know, as we get as we get older, the old the old stuff is the best stuff. But I think there is a reason why there's so much uh, what we would consider now, if it were cars, classical writing, yep. uh, or on our on our list is because I think the fundamentals of telling a story were very prized uh and we've become less that's become less of a thing there's more of a, a diffusion of storytelling uh and places to tell stories and so it, the more the merrier and the more styles the merrier but i do think that for just if you if you start looking at stories that are almost like 
bedrock examples, not the bedrock itself, but just examples of that bedrock, you're going to find a lot of older stories. And, and uh, even though we're talking about horror, some of these are going to be uh, from the pens of people who were who would never consider themselves horror writers. A lot of them didn't even consider themselves genre writers specifically. They considered themselves writers. So Barry Malsberg could write a novelization with the same panache that he wrote this outrage short story. In this case, Transfer, which is one of the most, I think, a seminal, especially because it's so it's so old at this point, a seminal example of. Uh, I don't know what slasher fiction is the right word, but it touches on slasher. It touches on cosmic. the there's there's a cosmic angle. It uh, there's a block. There, there's basically the psycho. Uh, there's like you know kind of how uh, the the bifurcation of personality. There is the unreliable narrator. There's all these things, uh, and it leaves it up to the reader to decide. And, and a twist who, ending too. Well, yeah. or, or or is it? See, or that's is the it? Thing. Yeah, it's, yeah that he, uh, he plays with your mind in that story. And just to set it up for everybody, basically it's set, I can't remember what city, but it's set in a big city. New York. And an office, an office, uh, kind of a mid-level to higher level office guy is kind of ruminating on the fact there's all these murders taking place. Women are being, are being murdered. And he goes for a walk at night and things happen. And I'm, I'm going to kind of leave it there. Uh, it's, it's more important just to know that this is, this is like one an older version of form, you know. Obviously, you go back to Poe, you know, if we want to start talking about the grandfathers, the OGs. But this story is, you know, 50, uh, 60 years, almost 60 years old. And it's, um, uh, like I said, a seminal example of, of its kind. And it has an ending that uh, is one of the, the, the most brutal and, and resonant endings I've ever read in the story. Yeah, it's, it, it's a phenomenal short story. And um, I'm going to put a little plug out there that we interviewed Barry Maltzberg on the Dickheads podcast. And um, he also, if you want to read his science fiction novels, have a real horrific angle at some points too. And I would definitely recommend Beyond Apollo. Before uh, you, oh, I, and I, I, I neglect to say just one thing. I yeah. met him uh, a couple of years after I read it, probably three years after I read it. Because I read it, like I said, 2004 or something like that. I happened to be at ReaderCon uh probably two years later and i walked i saw him it was late at night and he was just heading for his room by himself i'd never met him but i recognized him i walked over and i told him i shook his hand and you know and he's you you've talked to him he's a very stern he can be he's a very serious man he very was visibly, yeah. well i'm not gonna i serve it yeah but no he's he suffers no fools and right. i walked up and said mr malsberg i just want to tell you he was, it was i'm so glad i did Everybody out there, if you if you love a writer's work, walk up to him, you know, pin him against the wall, whatever you got to do, tell him, tell him, because this guy doesn't need my, uh, you know, my praise. Uh, but he he it moved him that somebody had read that story, that story that's as old as you know, it was fifty something years old, it was fifty years old at the time, and uh, that really moved me in return. Yeah, yeah, it's a great story, and uh, highly recommended it to track it down. Uh, but all Maltzberg is, is he's just a really interesting science uh, short story writer. He also has a really great short story called Idea that was written under a pen name. He also wrote Erotica. <coughs> on, um, that he Probably the most books he sold were these like weird 70s erotica novels. But that's all the one. great ones did. Yeah. Got to pay the bills. Paging Jose Farmer. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, Mark, you're number 10. 
you know, I said all my stories were older for the most part, except they're really not, I guess. Uh, this number 10 <laughs> made my list because, you know, I read the story with a smile on my face all the way through, all the way through. And the, the Skull Pocket by Nathan Ballingard. Um I thought, you know, the, the first line in that story <coughs> woke me up, which is, you know, John, and I wrote it down. Jonathan Wormcake, the gentleman corpse of Hobbs Landing, greets me at the door himself. And that in and of itself told me that I was, I was walking into a, a world that I just didn't know. And, and, um, and, and what he does, and I, and I want to say it's probably 20, maybe 30 pages. What he does in those 20 or 30 pages is something pretty remarkable. He builds, he world builds in such a way when I was done with that story, I really felt like I knew what was, what this whole, it was a very strange landscape that I was in. And, it involves uh, something called the Skull Pocket Fair. It's all about a ghoul. Uh, and you know this in probably the first paragraph of the, of the book. And I, I wasn't sure if they meant a real ghoul, but it ends up being a real ghoul. Uh, and, and he invited 14 kids to his house to uh, tell us a particular story. And, and while they're going through that story, it talks about his history and sort of the history of ghouls and 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 sort of this transformation they made from being underground, or at least he did, to living above ground in this community and how the community has sort of changed in the 70 plus years uh, that this fair has been, been held. And, you know, when you got characters that, you know, is a brain in a jar and an orchid girl. And, <laughs> and again, it's something that at the very end, it stuck with me because it, it made me smile. I thought it was just a, a fun story. There were definitely some somber moments in it, uh, but in the end, it, I just felt like it was complete. And some stories kind of leave it where there are other things to think about. This one didn't. It was it was like a satisfying sandwich. I was done at the end of eating the sandwich, and you know, but I could go back and eat another sandwich of the same kind uh, if that makes any sense at all. I just thought it was really well written, and it, I thought it was just kind of charming. And it reminded me a bit of some Neil Gaiman stuff. Um, but I would love to see this adapted into sort of like Coraline was in, in sort of a uh, claymation sort of stop motion thing. I think it would be awesome. But that was that was my number 10 before I got into the darker stuff, which is nine through one. <laughs> well, my number 10 uh, is another science fiction writer, uh, old school sci fi writer. Uh, nobody gives a literary middle finger better than Norman Spinrad. And uh, so I picked Street Meat by Norman Spinrad, which was in his collection, Other Americas, which is all novellas except for this one short story, which, um, you know, leave it to a guy who would write a novel as Hitler to spoof the Lord of the Rings, right, in the Iron Dream, to write a story like Street Meat that was written in the 80s about um, people kibble being a product where the homeless are harvested for food. Um, and Street Meat is just one of those stories that as I read it, I just couldn't believe it existed. <laughs> like that someone published this, that Norman Spinrad was going there. And it was early in my time of reading Spinrad. Like now I know that going there is like what Norman Spinrad does. And, um, you know, um, I did interview him for Dickheads and he was so angry the first five minutes. It's one of the most hilarious interviews I've ever done. 
um, because he hated the technology. But that's all I'll say about that. Uh, Street Meat by Norman Spinrad. And number nine, Mary. Number nine. My number nine choice was The Great God Pan by Arthur Machen. Um, I liked this story because uh, it was, well, frankly, it was one of the first cosmic horror stories I read outside of Lovecraft. But what I always thought that, um, that he did with The Great God Pan and with other, other works of his, uh, you know, other contemporaries of his too did this, was that it was the first time it occurred to me that he could use, uh, that, that really cosmic horror entities were, were used as a kind of metaphor for forces of nature that we can't control and that they're kind of terrifying in and of themselves. But the Great God Pan has a lot, I mean, it has a lot going on. It has a, it, it basically, if, you, if you've never read the story, it's, it's told from a couple of different people's points of view and much like, you know, much like a lot of Lovecraft's work, it's only when you put all the pieces together that you start to see this full picture of an evil that people unwittingly unleashed on the world. And that that evil is really only a, a precursor, a, a kind of John the Baptist, you know, making the way for something bigger and something more horrible. Uh, and I, I, one of the things I liked about, one of the things that I find like truly horrific about the story, despite the monsters, and, and I guess this maybe comes up a couple of times in my list, is that there's a casual cruelty and indifference to life in this story that is maybe more disturbing than the, the monster, than the antagonistic force itself. Uh, that the, the way that they can so casually cause this, this event to happen in the first place and that subsequently that people can so easily succumb to forces that they know are going to destroy them from the inside out and are still okay with that somehow until it, until it happens. Um, I, I found it to be a very powerful kind of story in that way. You know, I love monstery goodness in and of itself, but uh, I think that's what stuck with me most about this particular story. Mm. Okay, Laird, you're number eight. Uh, number eight or my number- Oh, no, number, no, nine, sorry. Right, okay. Um, well, Oops. I decided that I needed to wrap uh, graphic novels uh, in this list. Uh, uh, Junji Ito, Big in Japan, less so over here i i think that he well actually he's had a lot more commercial success i would i would venture just because of the movies and stuff but i i think he's sort of japan's legati uh probably gets a lot of they i wouldn't i would imagine that that he's gotten some nutritional value from legati but uh the enigma of amagara <laughs> fault uh is is the one i'm listing at nine uh it was initially published by big comic spirits I, I'm not sure what it comes out in the U.S., but at Viz Media, you can find it online. It's a fairly short story. Uh, the setup is um, there's been an earthquake, uh, like in central Japan, exposing the fault line. And people start flocking to it just out of curiosity, but also because uh, 
there are all these silhouettes, uh, these holes going into the into the earth that have been revealed, and they're like perfectly almost machine made. They're not chipped or naturally occurring. I mean, they must be naturally occurring, but they certainly don't look like it. And they're just sort of like these generic cutouts of people, and you know, uh, sort of like you know, sort of like the arms, you know, extended, the legs extended, like this, um, you know, spread eagle essentially. And they're at all heights. Uh, you know, this fault is just look at the comic. You know, it could be 60, 70 feet tall in places, the cliff sides. And okay, that's pretty creepy, pretty weird. They're they're trying to to run fiber optic cables down them and see what there is to see, but uh the the action really gets going when a character goes that hole is mine it was made for me and the guy climbs up there goes spread eagle and he starts inching his way into the into the hole and it becomes this uh mental illness that sweeps through sweeps through people visitors people are see it on tv and they they'll still see their hole you know and and to the viewer all the all the silhouettes look identical but not to the the individual and i won't i won't go any farther there's just you know just creepy development after creepy development but it's it's essentially a very simple idea uh i selected it because i think uh, a lot of good work is done in the visual media uh it, obviously writing's visual but i mean the sense of uh, graphic novels and you know manga things like that uh that i i think there's a lot of good stuff out there Edo alone i mean just so much good stuff i could have picked any number of stories uh like other authors on my personal list it wasn't necessarily what i consider my favorite or even their best but one that i think if, if you haven't read th these authors or you haven't encountered their stories th this would be a really great entry point uh it touches on the cosmic and one of the secrets of cosmic horror isn't just the uh minuteness of man or the idea that you know this has been going on forever and will always be going on, but it's but it's but it's also inevitability. There's mm -hmm. this inevitability to cosmic horror and to probably the best horror in general, but to cosmic horror specifically, that the idea that once this secret's revealed, the once the shock of it's revealed, the inevitability of it overtakes you. I, I can second the Edo thing. I had. Uh... My favorite Edo is The Long Dream, which is, you know, the concept of time stretching through the dreams. Oh, it's fantastic. fantastic yeah, stuff. he does. He does horror. I mean, I'm, I'm so glad to hear you say that because, you know, he does this extreme horror, cosmic horror, uh, supernatural horror. He also does man, you know, the, the evil of, of that man does to man and even sort of like indifferent, the indifferentness of, of the wilderness or of even the urban wilderness. It's the, the, the man has range. Hmm. All right, uh, uh, Mr. Rothenberg, you're number eight. You know, this author has a lot of great books, but I still consider him his best work to be, you know, short stories, which is Stephen He's, King. And, and this is this he might be going actually, places. <laughs> yeah, he might. That guy might know what he's doing as far as short stories. And this goes back to what Laird just said about the inevitability, the horror there, and that is the road virus heads north. Mm -hmm. um, this is in uh, published what nineteen two thousand somewhere around there, I think. Uh, I think it's in Everything's Eventual, um, and this is about a writer who's driving from um, Boston back to Maine, back to Derry, Maine, and he stops at a 
like a roadside yard sale and he finds this picture which is super creepy and he kind of if i remember correctly he kind of buys it almost as a lark because it's got this guy with fangs who's driving over a bridge in boston and, and it's titled the road virus heads north and he starts uh and he buys it just because why not and, and it turns out that there's a lot more to this painting and, and i think me telling you more than that would kind of spoil it but it definitely deals with the realization of inevitability and and the horror that that comes into that right where there's just something that can't some things that just can't be stopped and even if you wanted to stop them uh tough that's it's just again that's the cosmic part of it there's just uh, this plan in place and it's it's not going to stop turns out and they tell you this early in the story it's not a spoiler that the guy who had painted the picture went mad killed himself burnt all of his other paintings this is the only one that survived in, in a lot of ways and it's not just a picture it reminded me of a little bit of hp lovecraft's pickman's model in, in what the the art does to someone people literally say that you know they died i died for my art well, what if you just went mad from your art and that's kind of that's part of this too but but the inevitability i think is what really brings this horror and i think i think stephen king really does a fantastic job with that almost 99% of, uh, of his short stories. But this one, again, it just, you just feel it building and you, and you almost know what's going to happen at the end, but it, it but you keep going. You, 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 the horror is there and you really just want to see it through and, and you do in the end of this, but, uh, and I think it's been adapted maybe once or twice. I think it was at least on, didn't Mick Garris have, uh, he had a Nightmares and Dreamscapes. Yeah, I think it was adapted on there at one yep. point, which I didn't like the adaption that much, but uh, but I absolutely love the story. All right, well, breaking Laird's rule, I have next story is from a friend. Um, and this is one that I saw this author read it before it was published. And so I admit that that has a lot to do color my love for this story but it was published in cemetery dance so uh and that is wasted on the young by cody goodfellow and the story is in strategies against nature his collection and wasted on the young is a punk rock horror story about um meth heads and weirdo homeless punk rockers and it takes place here in san diego and there's like this super underground club where they have the nastiest, gnarliest punk shows, and you have to be abducted by this secret bus to take you to the shows. And so this bus runs around the city abducting homeless punk kids and dropping them off at this insane show. And so the idea of this bus just cruising around San Diego abducting homeless people, which we have plenty of um, because of the weather, uh, was is just a, a really frightening concept and um, Cody uh, I think is one of the best writers of my generation um, I hate to pump up his ego that much uh, um, as my friend uh, but uh, he is a great writer um, he does body horror really well so I almost said at water which I know Ellen Datlow just recollected um, but Wasted on the Young is the story that I first saw Cody read um, and he's a great reader, much like Harlan Ellison. And, um, and so I have a lot of love for this story. And when it appeared in Cemetery Dance, I already knew the story, 
but I reread it and was just like, hell yeah. I was really excited to see that story get wider play. I love Wasted on the Young by Cody Goodfellow. So Mary, you're number eight. Okay. My number eight. And I, I you know, I, like, like we had, we talked about earlier, it, it surprised me a little bit that because this is a Ramsey Campbell story and uh, Ramsey Campbell is kind of one of my literary idols uh, that he's at a number, number eight. But um, I think that there's just, there's so, so much, so many stories that it's hard. Like a lot of these stories, I think I could have put at sort of equal footing, but uh, I, I chose the man in the underpass. Now, of all the stories, this one, this one was at least when I first read it, I read it in uh, along with the horrors, and I, of all the stories in that collection, that one got me the most. And I, I think it's because it's a combination of both stories that involve children in peril or children causing peril. Um, and sometimes there's there's sort of a subtle difference between the two, uh, an uncomfortably subtle difference between the two. And also, again, that sort of cruelty, that casual cruelty that is sometimes more inherent in children than in adults. And I, I think that this story, uh, you know, in addition to having a sort of cosmic horror raising an ancient god kind of aspect to it, um, it, it got me because when, you know, when you're a little girl, particularly, and I'm sure little boys are told this too, but little girls especially are told that, uh, you know, you have to, you can't talk to strangers and you have to, you know, be careful that you don't go off with anybody and that grown men to little girls are sometimes a sort of intimidating and possibly, you know, dangerous entity to, 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 to a little girl. So, uh, for, for, for more than, you know, just, you know, physically violent reasons, but then there's that, because there's that almost that added sexual component kind of thing to it. And Ramsey Ca Campbell captures the subtlety of that horror, that boogeyman horror, particularly, I think, for little girls in this particular story. And he does it just so well. I mean, he could write about toilet paper and make it sound scary because of the, 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 the mastery of... Uh, this this growing dread that he puts in his own work, but but this one in particular, I think it got me because it dealt with a couple of different uh, a couple of different aspects of horror, but primarily the way that the supernatural can casually and negatively affect even little even children. So that was mine, the man in the underpass, Ramsey Campbell. Yeah, I'm more of a Ramsey Campbell novel fan. I like his short stories, but. Uh, was it the face that would must die or I'm sorry if I'm saying the title wrong that was is what is a great novel um, and I think um, Ramsey Campbell writes serial killers like incredibly well uh, he's underrated for that so yeah good good pick um, Laird your number eight uh, <clears throat> Michael Shea uh, the late great Michael Shea uh, I could have picked any number of stories uh, by him. This is not even, this used to be my favorite. It's not even my favorite, but I think it's extremely representative of him at the height of his power. Uh, it's a novella. I shamelessly include a couple of novellas on this list. They're, <laughs> they're, they're not novels, they're stories then. Um, Agreed. <laughs> so uh, uh, the autopsy 
And this appeared in Polyphemus, his great seminal collection, which you probably, if, unless you have a few hundred bucks in your pocket, you might not be able to find it. Uh, but he's had some some stuff recently uh, released. I think Demiurge might collect it. Uh, also, I read it the first time in Hartwell's Dark Descent, as I have as I have actually, I want to say maybe three or four of the stories on my list. And that doesn't bother me at all, because, of course, the, the Dark Descent is a legendary anthology for a reason. Uh, Hartwell outdid himself. And I remember what he said about Michael Shea that really made me look into Michael Shea. He goes, one of the most criminally under, I'm just paraphrasing, but essentially he, he said, this man's criminally under, under read. Uh, this is one of the best writers. And I had never heard of him when I read it, uh, or, or maybe vaguely. And so uh, it's one of, the, one of the reasons I included it is, well, there's a couple. One, how can I not? There's so many other authors that, like I know Harlan Ellison, no Peter Straub, no Jeff Ford, but I'm going to put Michael Shea on there. And Michael Shea, uh, the, one of the reasons I selected this particular story is because it's a quasi mythos story. I remember talking to him about it. I'm not, I cannot remember if he denied or, or just <laughs> smiled when he said it was sort of mythos oriented. I know that they've incorporated it. Chaosium has, has used it, the traveler, uh, the creature in this story. But another uh, reason that I picked it is because, yes, it's a cosmic horror story. It's overtly a cosmic horror story. It is uh there's a there's a ufo component and it's also a borderline peripherally a locked room story uh mm. amagara fault the enigma amagara fault also takes place in, in a location but this thing takes place almost entirely in an old like an old freezer room that he's that the, that the action takes place in and you say to yourself how can this guy do a I want to say a 25,000 word story, something like that with, you know, 18,000 or 20,000 words of it in this room. Well, you will see my friend, but the quick setup, it's about a doctor who's, Oh, my dog is visiting me. Um, <laughs> she's, she's like, what are you doing in there? Uh, anyway, he, he, uh, he's dying of cancer and he, he is summoned to this small, small Pacific Northwest town or Northern California. I can't remember which, but right in that area there has been uh, a mine explosion and he has been summoned to do the autopsy. But the sheriff who's drinking and acting very peculiar, their old friends says there's more to it than that. And he is, he spends the evening, the bulk of the story alone. He's left alone. If you need anything, just there's a rotary phone in the other room, you know, I'll be, you know, if you need help with help, you know, we need help now. I'm, I'll be minutes away. Uh, and, and he's in the he's in this he's in this room with I think seven or eight shrouded corpses, and needless to say, he begins to discover irregularities in their in in their uh, physiognomies. So I'll leave I'll leave it at that. It's it's one of the best exercises of escalating dread that has a payoff. Horror sometimes flubs the payoff. The payoff is as good as anything, uh, and I'll leave it there. All right, so Mark, you and I both have big time classic authors next. Mark, go. Yeah, yeah you know, it's hilarious because I swear I've never met Laird, uh, although I'm honored to be with him now, but he writes the best transitions for my <laughs> statement here, which is the payoff. You're welcome. The payoff is the key. Absolutely, thank you. <laughs> and so my number eight has, in my opinion, one of the <laughs> best payoffs in horror history. Uh, which is Rats in the Wild by H.P. Lovecraft. Um, 
anyone, you know, we could argue about H.P. Lovecraft and uh, dude, he was not a good guy. I get that. And you could say sign of the times, whatever. But but you can't deny his contributions as, as far as what his writing was. And Rats in the Walls brings in this just creepy feeling with this guy, you know, Delaport coming back to his ancestral home and, and you know, his son dying and he's going to try to, you know, work on this house and he discovers something under his house that leads to terrible family secrets. And, and in the end, it, it's sort of this, yeah, there's some cosmic horror in there, but it, it really is this man versus man conflict and the horrors that he discovers about his ancestors and his family secrets that essentially just drives him insane. Um, and the payoff, the sort of last lines of the book and, and the position it puts the narrator in, Delapore, uh, I think it really just hammers home, uh, you know, what happens uh, when you discover something that is just so terrible you can't deal with it. Plus, it's got one of the coolest names of any estate ever, which is Exum Priory. I just, for some reason, I just love that. Um, but there you go. That's, you know, if you haven't read it, read it. I'm just, I know, I guarantee you all, everyone on this podcast has read it. Uh, I just, for some reason, I just love it. It's just, I could have picked any number of Lovecraft stories, but this one, again, just always just gets to me. I just love it. Well, of course, we have uh, one of you has uh, Lovecraft at number one. So we will return to, to Howie uh, in a little bit. Um, my number eight um, uh, is an author who is known by the pen name James Tiptree Jr. Mm -hmm. But uh, of course, was uh, her real name was Alice Sheldon. And um, my number eight is The Screwfly, Screwfly Solution by... Uh, James Tiptree Jr., a.k.a. Alice Sheldon. This is, to me, it is um, whether you're talking my personal favorites or best, this is a top 10 horror story of all time. Um, we're currently seeing it be sort of ripped off on TV right now with Why the Last Man. Um, this is one of the original, like, um, you know, gender, half the gender drops off the planet stories with, um, <coughs> and, uh, but the, and even though the twist ending is in the title, <laughs> the twist ending is in the title, it still works. Um, there are incredibly creepy moments in this story. Well, Alice Sheldon was known for being a science fiction writer. Um, several of her stories are absolutely 100% horror, and this is one of them. This is an absolutely freaky story. I just reread it this year. It absolutely works just as well as it used to. I know it's been adapted a few times. Um, I have been afraid to watch those adaptations because I love it the way it is. And, um, but yeah, um, Laird, I would like to get your thoughts a little bit on, on Alice Sheldon because I know you're a big fan too. Um, just, you know, what makes Alice Sheldon's writing work so well? Her fucking ruthlessness. <laughs> I, one of the one of the yeah. worst myths one of the worst myths yeah i'm a fan of genre uh in the sense of as a, as a category because i think it it can be it, there's a dark side there's a there's a bad edge to it which is people get get shoehorned into you know mm -hmm. boxes but the good side is that we have a shorthand to discuss things 
And then we can deviate from that shorthand. It makes a list like, like ours possible where you can say, look, I think Paul Bowles, who appears twice on my list, he's not a horror author. And maybe that's not a horror story. But since we all have the shorthand for what we kind of go, yeah, this is sort of centerline horror. Mm-hmm. You, it gives you the room to do that. And Alice Sheldon, I, it's funny that you, you, you call on me because I'm, I, I really wrestled with including uh, one of my favorite stories of all time. And if I put it on the list, it would have been in my top 10 was uh, uh, love is the plan. The plan is death. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just really wrestled with, hmm, there's just so many other other worthy authors, but she is ruthless. And the, and the myth that women uh, do not appreciate violence, that women do not appreciate, uh, you know, hard boiled or nourish elements or just fucking ruthless elements is one of the biggest canards I have ever, I have made my career going, of course there are people who don't like my stuff, but it's divided between men and women who don't, oh, that's, oh, that's gross. That's drug use in it, et cetera. Women are, not only do they love that stuff, the, uh, some of the best uh, crime, mystery, noir, and horror have been perpetrated <laughs> by women. Well, and she I was think, a freaking spy. She was a spy. <laughs> right. You and know? So, for me, that's what I like about her writing. It's another reason I love Shirley Jackson and Angela Carter. They're like the, the trinity of these. O'Connor. Uh, mm-hmm. These are hard-edged people, and they all have their different approaches. They take their different approaches. But Sheldon's one of the greats. Yeah. Um, yeah, Screwface. Rakuna. Rakuna Sheldon, yes. Yes. I think she wrote that. I, the story that I'm talking about, uh, The Love yeah. is the Plant, as if she wrote that. I think it was Rakuna Sheldon she wrote that under. I can't remember. Yeah, but, she yeah. had many, many, many pseudonyms, so it's hard to kind of unpack. We could, do a, we, could, we could do a panel on her. She, it would be well worth it. Yeah, yeah. Um, noted. Um, and <laughs> we'll come back to that at some point. Um, number seven, Mary. Okay, my oh. number seven. Yes. Was... Casting the Runes by M.R. James. I know Mark had talked about it a little bit. Uh, this was, and, and, I, and I, you know, this point <coughs> a whole lot, you know, that I'll add other than that uh, this story to me manages to both be funny and disturbing, like genuinely disturbing. Uh, because again, it goes back to that idea of superstition, which to me, uh, you know, if, if you are inclined in any way to believe in anything, I think that you can't discount the power of superstition on the human psyche. And this is one of those stories that I, I really believe uh, captures that. Uh, there's, there's some humor in it because I think M.R. James had a, 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 an almost winking approach to writing anyway, but not at the expense of you know, what was truly disturbing in his work and and i and i like that i'm not one of those people i don't think that can write stuff that's both funny and scary uh so i admire that and and uh pretty much anything of mr james i've ever read has uh a a little bit of that in and in but it it never the humor's never at the you know sacrificing the scary part of it so oh well said thank you that's a roll doll I put him in Roll Doll. I mean, that mm-hmm. I think you, got, you cut right to the essence of James. He, he, I believe a lot of those stories are like Christmas stories, you know, and it's like, right. sure, and he lulls you in, just like Roll Doll. Oh, yeah, it's gentle. <laughs> and then the knife. So, yeah. Right. Well, right. Well, well done. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, Thank you. Uh, Laird, 
you get to tell us what your number seven is, but we're going to have to come back to it because somebody has it a little higher than you. Number seven, Sticks by Carl Edward Wagner. Yes. Um, I guess I, I, I know you could never guess who has that on their list. <laughs> All the glee. Uh, yes, we will come back to Sticks, um, which was one I considered as well, but it didn't quite make mine. So I'm glad you guys had it. Um, so, Mark, you're number seven. I swear, the Laird, the Laird leading me into the next thing is just <laughs> awesome. Um, it's The Landlady by Raul Dahl. Um, oh, yes. That's one of the best. It's, it's, it's the best. And I, was, and I read this in Kiss Kiss so long ago. And it's hilarious because my daughter, a couple of years ago in high school, was, it took a, a genre fiction class. And I'm so happy she did because they had her read this. And we discussed it afterwards. And it was just spectacular to, to talk to someone with new eyes on this story. Were you right? insufferable because to that teacher? Was, I bet you were insufferable <laughs> to that teacher. Like, I, I, I stayed away. I was not. I was never a helicopter okay. parent. My kid, you know, we could talk about. You know, David knows that I every year I put on a whole horror festival for my kid uh, called Screen Break, where we just watch genre movies for a whole week. She watched like nice. twenty five. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Nice. Going back, it's my kid. My kid is fully versed in horror and she's just not that person at all but anyway let's go back to the landlady which is a very innocent story much like Roald Dahl tends to do right and I could have picked several Roald Dahl stories uh Lamb to the Slaughter stuff like that but the landlady just gets to me because it's about a guy who's who's going to start a new job in Bath in, in the city of Bath and he finds a boarding house after being turned away from an inn and and the landlady there She's super, super nice, but there's there's something sinister there, just based on little comments she makes about old boarders who've been there, right? You know, there was, I remember him, there wasn't a blemish on his body, and the guy's like, what? And she's like, oh, never mind, I don't know what I'm talking about. Just, I'm an old lady, don't worry about me. Uh, and then again, it's the Raldell gut punch, it's that knife in the gut that you get at the very end of that story, and, and she acts almost very motherly. Um, he was so good at writing. That's why when I talked about, you know, that whole Septimus Dale story where I don't can't find anything about, I kind of tend to think that Raldal might be that guy because it was a very Raldal thing, just sort of this innocent, innocent, innocent boom. And, and the landlady's been adapted many times into many things, including I think on the Tales of the Unexpected. Mm -hmm. It might even that was a pretty creepy adaptation. Now that I think about it. Uh, Definitely worth a read. Not a super long read, but man, again, one that just stuck with me. What good choice. I love that story. All right. Um, number seven is one that I uh, told Laird to read on Twitter a couple months ago. I don't know uh, if he did or not, but um, I bet I didn't. <laughs> probably not, but I remember I did. Um, <laughs> this is, um, and I want to say before I launch into this that this story was a seminal story for one of my favorite writers f paul wilson and he was the one that that pointed me in the direction of this story when i interviewed him for a panel on dickheads about anthony boucher anthony boucher is one of the foundational authors of the mystery genre but also also the science fiction genre we wouldn't have philip k dick if as a writer if um, 
Anthony Boucher wasn't one of his regular customers at the record store he worked in in Berkeley and encouraged him to come to his writers group. He first published Richard Matheson, Charles Beaumont. Uh, many of these authors got their start in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, which Anthony Boucher was a co-founder of. And I just want to put that out there because his bona fides are so important as an editor, um, more so than as a writer, but he was a fantastic writer. And he has this collection, The Complete Werewolf. And all these stories um, come from his production of science fiction, fantasy, and horror during World War II. This is stories that he wrote in the early 40s. And there's a story in there called They Bite. And They Bite is like a combination of the Doctor Who episode Blink and the Hills Have Eyes. But it was written in the 40s. So you have these creatures that can only move when you're talking about them. So they, oh. yeah. So like you, like when there's, when the legendary tales of them are being told, they move closer to you. And they exist in this desert town in California, but they always stay out of sight, but they eat people. So there's, it, it's, it is one of the best horror stories. I only read it a couple months ago, but um, F. Paul Wilson, when we did our panel on Tony Boucher, he kept saying, They Bite by Tony Boucher, like rocked his world when he was a kid. And it was one of the stories that got him to be a horror writer. And F. Paul Wilson is one of my absolute favorite writers. So as soon as he said that, I jumped right ahead in this book to read They Bite first. And then read the whole collection. The whole collection is great. There's a lot of humor in it. The, the, the title story, The Complete Werewolf, is hilarious. Um, and then there's some great uh, science fiction stories with tubes to the airport and all kinds of awesome 40s stuff. So nice. uh, they, they Bite by Anthony Boucher. I highly, highly recommend that one. Um, and that's the most recent. The, it's the one that I read the most recently for the first time. So, uh, Mary, your number six. My number six was The Mask of the Red Death by Edgar Allan Poe. And the reason I chose this one, I mean, I, I, I debated a little bit about putting Poe on here only because I feel like it should just go without saying that any top 10 list of short stories would include a Poe story somewhere. And there are so many to pick from. But this one was always my favorite one. And when I really thought about why it was my favorite, I think it it came down to, uh, it came down to a couple of things. One, again, it has that for, I, and I almost only ever write supernatural horror. Uh, it's just a personal preference. Uh, and but yet I noticed that in all the supernatural horror stories that I really admire, and I try to do this a little bit in my own stuff. It's it's that idea again of this sort of casual cruelty of human beings, either as a result of the supernatural uh, horror or as a catalyst for it. And I, there, there's definitely that in this. I, it's, I think because of the time it was written, it's maybe not as gratuitous as a modern writer might approach this. I mean, I've, I've talked to, to like when I've, when I've taught this short story in uh, literature classes, I've told them that the different colored rooms all mean something and they're all up to some some pretty crazy shenanigans in each room and you can almost guess based on the color and possibly you know some of the descriptions what they're doing in that room and it's 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 an entire uh 
castellated abbey of vices and, and that are being done while the people that they're responsible for are dying. And th that in and of itself is horrible, but it also comes back to, um, I, I, think it, I think it was Laird that was talking about the inevitability of horror, uh, that this was an inevitability that they, they just couldn't foresee, even though they should have been able to. And, and, and frankly, I, the, the, the last I, is that death has got some style here. Like if you're gonna roll up as, as a, a, you know, as, as death itself, I mean, if you are going to personify yourself to a bunch of human beings that you know have it coming, this is a really cool way to do it, <laughs> you know? He is just so, or it, I guess should say, it, it is so badass <laughs> in this story that you can't help not rooting for the Red Death to win because it's he's just that cool. All right, uh, Laird. Well, six. all right, I, I applaud that pick. Um, Christopher Lee's reading of it, which is available somewhere online, because everything seems to be, is not to be slept on. Uh, it's just fab. I mean, it's a fabulous story, but hearing Christopher Lee read it is just amazing. Uh, I, I had Gabriel, I, I heard it with Gabriel Byrne reading it, which is oh, I bet, very good I, too. Yeah. I, I imagine, I imagine. Um, one of my favorite actors. Number six, uh, a classic, kind of a modern classic, uh, The Summer People. By Shirley Jackson. Oh, nice. Uh, I encountered it in The Dark Descent, uh, Hartwell's anthology. Uh, it is, I selected it because, um, you know, one of the things I went for on my list, I, I tried to go for a little bit of diversity, uh, you know, uh, different perspectives, but also sort of just to show the spectrum and not just focus on my personal favorite, which is obviously cosmic horror, but, uh, or Norse or more stylings but the summer people is one of the most elegant understated and gentle it's not even you know like rolled doll kind of tongue-in-cheek no 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 it's very gentle it's it's uh you know this examination of an uh, of an older retired couple who go to this they've been doing it for years they go to this uh little cottage cabin you know in the hills and they've been doing it for a while and this time they decide to stay longer. They decide, you know, instead of leaving, uh, you know, with fall, they're going to maybe stay a little while. And that really confuses the, the locals. The locals are like, but nobody ever, ever stays. Uh, it is a non-supernatural horror story. Uh, I think it's adjacent to the lottery. It's certainly adjacent to the oblique or elliptical styling of, of, of Aikman, mm -hmm. where the true horror uh, is the implication, the mm -hmm. true sinister uh, sort of tightening of the, of, of the spring is in what's not said mm -hmm. or what is said obliquely. I, I, I remember when I read it the first time, I, I had to read it multiple times to, to understand why it ended the way that it did. Uh, and it's also one of those stories uh, where you, 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 the, that it continues after the, the ending of the story. So um, I would say a, a modern, if not a contemporary classic, a modern classic of the understated, elegant, very quiet uh, horror, but yet in its implication as horrific as anything, you know, that I've listed so far. 
All right, Mark, and um, and don't worry, folks. Uh, re being recorded, we're going to take a break in a little bit. Um, <laughs> uh, Mark, you're number six. Yeah, I, I just have to make comment about Shirley Jackson. I think Laird's absolutely right. I mean, the, uh, she is she was a master of the understated horror. I remember reading, you know, and we're talking about short stories, but we've always lived in the castle, and mm -hmm. that the understated just dread and horror that's in that book. And, and again, it permeates through everything I've ever read by her. Uh, I mean, Haunting a Hill House, it's just mm -hmm. amazing, amazing. Uh, that being said, you didn't transition to this one for me, so you lose now. Um, all right, number six, <laughs> a very short, well, that's the way it is, man. No uh, I'll be pretty blunt about it. Number six for me, I first heard this when I was probably four or five years old on a record album. It was a, uh, it was, Alfred Hitchcock's Ghost Stories for Young People. So I love this so much that I found this album. I bought this album. I put it digital. And every year, every October, I play this album over and over in my car for my daughter, for myself. And this is an adaption. Uh, that was an adaption of this story, which I, I've grown to really love, which is The Open Window by Sakai, which was uh, uh, a British author, H.R. H.H. Monroe. I don't know if you guys have read it. It's a very short story. This is one of those children are evil stories. Um, and, and what I love about the story without going too much, I'll go into it a little bit. It's about this guy who's got a nervous condition and his doctor has prescribed that he gets out a little bit more and, you know, and deals with his anxiety by getting out and meeting people. So he talks to his sister and his sister gives him some letters of introduction for him to go and meet, um, some friends she had known. He arrives at this house, and this was published in 1911, but in its public domain. You can go find this on the internet. And he, he when he gets there, he meets this little girl. And, and I'm not going to spoil it because I'm not going to tell you the end, but I, I do have to tell you the setup. And the little girl is like, hey, who are you? And he explains who he is, and he explains why he's there. And, and the little girl says stuff like, so you don't know anyone here? And, no, I don't. And you're here to just see my aunt? Yes. Uh, and then the little girl, he notices there's an open window, an open door, and it's kind of breezy outside. She goes, you're looking at the open door, right? She goes, yeah. And he goes, she goes, yeah, I'm so sorry. You know, it's it's just the anniversary. And he's like, well, what anniversary? Well, my, my brother and my uncle, they all went out hunting. And uh, yes. a couple of years ago, right? And, and, and they're going to come back. And my aunt sadly thinks they're going to come back. And she keeps the door open every day. And, and terror just ensues from there. But it's a fantastic story. What I loved about this story is, you know, it's easy to say a person in a story is a liar. It's, but more than in this story, the, the, one of the characters is an unreliable narrator to another character in the story, mm -hmm. which, which you don't see very much, but man, I love, I love the story. I am in love with this story. It's, it's spectacular. And as a matter of fact, I'll probably end up listening to it while I drive around today at some point. Uh, but the open window by Sakai, uh, just a great story. I think it has been adapted into other things, probably in Alfred Hitchcock presents. I just have never really watched it. I just love the telling of the story the way I heard it. And again, just reading it. Okay. That's awesome. Yeah, that's, that's really cool. So medical advice is a leading cause of death in horror stories. <laughs>
It, oh, and it totally is in this story. Uh, sort of. <laughs> so you're, um, you've got anxiety. You're nervous. Go out and meet people. Oh, okay. That's a good idea. So this one is my number six is a novella. But since we um, agree that novellas are stories, um, I, I went with this one. And of course, I'm going to have a Philip K. Dick story on here. I do the Dickheads podcast. So, um, but I think um, Second Variety by um, Philip K. Dick is um, an absolute banger, classic horror story, science fiction story. Um, it is one of his all-time greatest stories. It is a masterpiece of paranoia, of um, in just insanity. Uh, um, and Second Variety is, if you don't know, is a post-nuclear apocalypse World War III story. And there's a squad of soldiers and there are these robots that are sent to kill them. But then possibly there's another design, a second type of robot that um, changes the game. Uh, as it were, and this was adapted into a low-budget movie in the 90s um, called Screamers um, that has, was originally, the original Screamers screenplay was written by Dan O'Bannon back when they thought they were going to have money, and if you get a chance to read the Dan O'Bannon script when they thought they were going to have money, it's a really incredible script, too, um, and also I should say that we wouldn't have Philip K. Dick, the phenomenon that we did without second variety, because second variety was the story that got on Dan O'Bannon's radar. And the next one that he started developing was do androids dream of electric sheep. Had he not been developing that one, we might not have ever gotten blade runner because it, that's the reason why, um, the people that eventually made blade runner had it on their radar was Dan O'Bannon going around Hollywood saying somebody should make this into a movie and not be faithful to it because it wouldn't make a good movie if he made it faithfully, but that's a whole nother thing. So, um, but yes, Screamers, Second Variety is to me an absolute masterpiece. It's one of Philip K. Dick's best. If you don't think Philip K. Dick can write horror, I'm telling you his masterpiece is the three stigmata of Palmer Eldridge. And that is a cosmic horror story all day and on Sunday. So uh, Philip K. Dick writes horror uh, as well as science fiction. And with that, I think we should take a little break before we get into number five. I'm going to pause. All right, Mary, you're number five. Okay, my number, two. my number five was uh, mentioned earlier. It's, it's Sticks by Carl Edward Wagner. Uh, I, uh, to tell you the truth, this was one of those stories that I guess I have both a personal and a creative association with. So maybe that's why I ended up on the list. When I first met uh, Brian Keene, he told me, uh, we were talking about favorite short stories. And he said, well, he goes, one of my favorite short stories is Sticks. And I don't really feel like you can be a horror writer unless you've read Sticks. And I didn't say, oh, well, I've never read Sticks. <laughs> but I did go and rectify the situation and I'm glad I did. And, and I think that, you know, because it partially reminds me of Keen, but also because I, I, I there is a um, a beautifully developed quiet horror story in Sticks, and it, it, it on on a couple of different levels. It's it it's increasingly sinister in both an external and internal way. Uh, I think that we get 
something, first of all, that we can kind of relate to, because um, if I remember correctly, the main character is an illustrator for horror and uh, sort of talks about the kinds of things that we can relate to as creatives in terms of, you know, deadlines and, and, and working with people and, and, and making sure that you get to the, the, the sort of the heart of the project that you're working on. And it, it offers that, that possibility that your art is going to kill you or your art is going to, I, I went another story I think we talked about earlier about how your, I think Mark mentioned it about how your art can drive you mad. And uh, I get, I mean, it's, it's, to me, it's cosmic horror because it has that sort of that, well, first of all, that element of inevitability that, that Laird mentioned, but it also has that sort of uh, that what the antagonistic force is something bigger than us. And um, it, it, that no matter what you do, you're, you're just, you're not going to be able to, to get around it. And I do, I have to say, I, I do agree with Keen that it is a classic of horror because it, it not only reflects horror for the, the average person, but it reflects a kind of horror in a symbolic way uh, that only creative people understand that digging that deep sometimes into what makes us who we are and what makes us able to write the things that we write, that maybe someday that's going to be detrimental to us. And I think it's something that creative people just tend to swallow down and ignore, but sticks as a story that kind of brings it out in the open. And, and I like that. I can appreciate that. I can respect that. Laird. Oh, I second all that. Um, I didn't even look at it. You know, it's right. It's about an art. It's about an illustrator or an artist right before he he's doing like one last little hike and doing some fly mm -hmm. fishing. If I recall right before he in the cat skills, right before he has to go off to world war II, mm -hmm. actually. But to me, I look at it. Uh, I, I actually just focused in on obsession, um, which artists are obsessive. So in other words, it doesn't, the fact that he's an artist, that's, that's important, but it's the obsessiveness. Mm -hmm. It's not the art that will kill him. It's the, or kill you. It's the, uh, if you obsess over things that can lead to detrimental outcomes. It's a cosmic horror story. I agree. It's utterly because cosmic horror is almost, it's like right there in the dictionary beside inevitability. <laughs> uh, there is, I mean, what else could there be? There is only mm -hmm. this. Um, I like all that. Uh, so I'll just, I'll leave it there with the story because I agree with all that. I think I think she said it perfectly. Uh, she'd intrigue you to go read it. I will say this though, just in general, uh, Carl Edward Wagner wrote a lot of great stuff. He wrote crime, mystery, suspense, uh, some stuff that has absolutely zero or, or really minimal uh, supernatural intrusion. Mm. He was a wonderful editor. I think his greatest gift to us was, was editing uh, over all those years. Yeah. That's how I ran into him reading his year's best horror back when I was younger. Uh, and like, if I, you know, I picked sticks as well, but I could have easily gone with where the summer ends. Yes. Um, which yes. is one of the greatest endings that will ever be written yes. in a story. I don't know. If it, I won't say it's the best, but it's, it, it's, it's, it, it is enshrined as it would be like when they put Clint Eastwood and call, Paul Newman and everybody mm. on the same line, you know, yes. you don't, that's how it goes. Um, <laughs> I agree. But 222 Swift, uh, the river of nights dreaming, uh, just that, that one right there shows you eroticism. I mean, cause he's a burly, hurly, yeah. manly man 
uh, of the John Wayne, Clint Eastwood, yep. Paul Bunyan variety of writing and, and life. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet he's able to write these delicate. I feel yeah. that way about Peter Straub. You meet Peter Straub and he's this, mm -hmm. a bear of a man. <laughs> uh, 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 Jeff Ford, same thing, a bear of a yes. man. Yes. And yet when they roll up their sleeves, they sit at the piano, they take a sip, and then the most delicate music can come out of that piano. Mm. Uh, they can also hit those harsh notes too, but mm. if they want to, they can just very delicately hit those little pink keys. And yes. he, he proved he could do that. Sticks is one of those stories that it's, it is what it seems. It's very simple, mm -hmm. but it touches on a lot of things that I think make horror great. And yeah. I recommend if you like it and you start reading uh, uh, Wagner, you will appreciate him even more if you go, if you can like find anything out about his life. Mm -hmm. uh, he, right. his life, uh, tragic and, and 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 stirring in equal measure will inform. He, he's one of those writers that I, I think Paul Bowles is another one, although less admirably. Uh, but reading about them will really inform your appreciation of their writing. I agree. And if I can just add one more thing, uh, just to kind of piggyback on what on what Laird said, uh, his his life and his passing, I think, reflect that same. Um, that same delicacy, that same uh, sense of the beautiful and mm -hmm. the ephemeral. The ephemeral, yes. That uh, the horrors sort of, um, sorry, we have the bikers going by. <laughs> um, but it's, it's that, that sense of the beautiful and the ephemeral. And um, for, for, you know, like you said, for such a big burly, man's man kind of guy he could write in, in a poetically beautiful sort of way and both about that ephemeral beauty and about the underlying horror beneath it and it's just it's it's mm. admirable it's really incredible stuff did you just say that this is the just... first by the way oh, sticks is the first story that i read of wagner's and and i've just you know immediately i was i knew this is this is a, an author who has great strengths, but I also had seen his name as editor of several books, and so I knew his name beforehand. But then I remember reading it and thinking, "Oh, well, he's a great writer too," and mm -hmm. I need to read more because it's a book that I've read, or I mean, a story that I've read collected. Right, and I know a lot has been made about it inspiring. Um, Pizzolatto for for True Detective, and I think that's bullshit. I I, I don't even know if he read it, um, but who knows? You never know with that thing. As I know, you've learned Laird uh, all too well. But you know what Pizzolatto's read or not read, but Sticks is a fundamental, foundational story mm -hmm. in the horror community, and it's one that writers talk about for good reason. Absolutely. And there's several, there's several, but before we move on, I think it's important. Did you just say, uh, Mary, do you say bikers? It's like, you know, motorcycle riders. Oh yeah. We have uh, we have a biker bar up the road uh, from well, where we live. And, and every once in a while we get the, we get the, the, the lot of them riding by and with their music and their motorcycles. And uh, this may be apocryphal, but I don't think so. I, I, I believe that he was interested in bike and in, in, uh, motorcycles like, very much. Oh, really? So it was an omen. Oh. It was a sign. I just, yeah. that's, I that's, I'm sorry. <laughs> so point. I just thought that was because I've seen pictures of him in, in a motorcycle, like yes. in the, in the, in the, not wearing colors, but so anyway, I just thought you that was a, right. Yeah. Uh, okay. okay. Laird, you're, you're number five. 
All right. Um, let me get my little thing back up here. All right. What do I got to say? Ah, uh, you know, I could have, you could almost just reach into a hat for this guy <laughs> because a lot of writers are typified by two or three or a handful of great stories, right? Mm -hmm. But, and, and so this writer is too, but only because that's sort of like the, the memory space that a lot of people have uh, to hold in their mind. You know, I can, I can only remember like the big hits from these three bands, you know, that's, that's right. all I've got though. They're, they're, they're three big hits. When, oh no, Radiohead, for example, has been doing, you know, dozens of them uh, that are almost, you could pick one or another and, and not lose, a, lose anything. This writer is one of those. Um, I actually came to him pretty late. I mean, I, I know I read him once again in the, the Dark Descent anthology, Larger Than Oneself, but the story that I've selected is uh, The Hospice by uh, Robert Aikman. Robert Aikman, I think quietly, very quietly, uh, has had a tremendous influence on the, the weird fiction community, if nothing else. And a sui generis sort of, a sui generis sort of uh, influence in that you cannot, I don't think that you can imitate Aikman successfully. I think it would be really obvious. And I think somebody like Cormac McCarthy, I mean, the great authors are actually easy to parody because they have these beats that are, you're like, oh, I wish I would have thought of that. And then you do it, but it's just you, it's just you trying to imitate Van Gogh or something. Right. Uh, the, bo the bottom line is he has this distinct style and yet it's, it's elusive as oil on your hand. There's just no, okay. it's slippery. Uh, and the hospice is essentially this, it's a nightmare uh, is how I, is how I actually did an essay about it a few years ago. Uh, a very lengthy one, actually, and I deconstructed deconstructed the story. But the thing is, is that like many of his stories, I've tr I've kind of come, and I'm and I'm no Aikman scholar, uh, but after reading four of his collections uh, in sh kind of in succession here a few years ago, I didn't understand some of the stories from like Cold Hand in Mind, which is where this story was originally mm -hmm. published or collected, until I read, you know, Wine Dark Sea or something, come right. back and go, oh wait. The punchline's in another story, two collections <laughs> down the road. And you, he doesn't give a flying rat's ass whether you ever put that together or not. His most, uh, his, like his most commercial top 40 story is Ringing the Changes, I would say, mm -hmm. about the undead. This was probably in there uh, only because so many people have uh, re, you know, collected it. But essentially, it's just a guy that goes to this hospice. But it's a hospice in a different sense of the of the word it actually is almost like a rectory slash old folks home mm -hmm. slash hospice and the events that unfold there are and one of the reasons I, I selected him for the top 10 is because he represents quiet horror but not the way that charles grant or some of these other right. uh joel lane people like that that they truly are quiet uh mr james mm -hmm. uh, no elliptical and elusive and I don't know, you know, what happened. I'm gonna have to read this again, yeah. and you get something new out of it every time. Uh, all I'll say about it is just it's a, it's one man's nightmare. He gets bitten in the leg. He's looking for this place he's supposed to go. It's dark. Something bites him in the leg. He assumes it's a dog, but mm -hmm. maybe maybe it was a dog. Who knows what it was? And he goes into this he goes into this place, and it, very much like Roald Dahl, the, it just starts escalating slowly but surely. But you're not going to get. Uh, with Aikman, you will never get, except maybe in a couple of his really popular, oh, um, pages from a young girl's journal is another top 40 type of thing, where you get like a conclusion that you can right. sink your teeth into and say, yeah, that's what happened, I think. 
this is going to be this will haunt you this will this will be you'll be playing with this rubik's cube long after you've read it you'll have to go back i agree i i think of aikman uh as like if other stories give you a sense of horror or dread or terror or even disgust Aikman gives you that sense of unease. Like I, it's the feeling that I imagine animals must feel before a storm. Mm-hmm. You know, it's that kind of feeling. And there's incohate dread. Yeah. And because of its, its um, sort of nebulous nature, there's almost something I think more horrific than if you're actually confronting the horror head on, because it, it's that, that, that panic that you can't just sort of logically talk yourself down from right sure what you're talking yourself down from. but but it's there your primitive brain Mm -hmm. recognizes it and yeah and and he does just enough because you don't just read an eggman you read you need to read a you need to read a bunch of his stuff to really get Mm -hmm. it but it the point isn't to get it it's like abstract art it is to experience it and it it's like somebody he's like he gets into your brain with a pick and he's up oh, there goes your foot moving. You don't. It doesn't matter why it did. He just hit the right nerve. And um, highly, highly recommended, but not in the same way that anybody else on this list that I've recommended for a for a functional three act structure. Right. It is you you if you if, if if it turns out to be your thing, it is a nightmarish. Uh, always in the corner of your eye, and if you turn your head, mm-hmm. it's still in the corner of your eye. That's how I that's how I read him. No matter which way you uh, look, as Brian Evans to quote Brian Evans said it's still behind it's still right in the, it's right there and you're never going to be able to look at it directly that's a good way to put it yeah i agree all right mark your number five my number five uh again i guess you're going back classic and this is another this is another writer who's who's obviously known for science fiction but he's very familiar with horror i think if you've ever read it and this this story while science fiction i think falls right in that horror square which is the velt by ray bradbury um i was familiar with this story just from reading the illustrated man uh, again when i was younger although i guess it was published i mean illustrated man is just sort of a i mean it it is an anthology but it's kind of put together about an illustrated man who's got different stories but the velt uh, it's interesting in rereading this how true it's almost become. This is a story of some parents who come home in, in the near future. This was written in 1950, and in the nursery in that future is uh, almost like a holodeck from from Star Trek, right? And and the children have done something to manipulate it to make it an African belt, and the parents are quite disturbed by this. They don't. Why aren't they doing something fun? And at one point, the father even threatens, hey, I'm going to take it all away. I'm going to shut down the automatic house, which is kind of like I'm taking your phone away. Uh, but the kids are somehow addicted to being in this nursery. And uh, and again, this is another story where the kids are just a problem. Um, and I have a kid, but yeah, they're just a problem. Um, and in the end, guess what? The kids are a problem. Uh, without revealing more than that, it's a classic story. Most people have read it, but... Uh, rereading it as an adult i've read it several times in my life uh, i always find something new bradbury's really good at just these little subtle hints that he puts in and then while it's there's a sort of this expressed over conclusion to it at the same time there's just a little language in it where you know someone recognize and then they recognize what where they had heard the scream before and, and stuff like that it's just a, and again i'm sh- I know this has been adapted because they made the illustrated man into a movie, but 
But again, just a fantastic story. I saw Bradbury, uh, after he had a stroke, he came to uh, a local theater. Actually, he was with Doug, Douglas Adams, and he did a, a brief reading, and he read a little bit out of this story. Uh, and he, uh, It was just fantastic. I love it. I just, again, almost all of my top five, with the exception of one, I, I just love these stories. Um, and, and again, it just, to me, it's just classic. Can't go wrong with it. All right. I've got another science fiction writer <laughs> writing horror. Um, this is another story from The Future is Female, edited by Lisa Yazik. Um, Lisa, if you don't know Lisa, Lisa teaches science fiction at Georgia Tech in Atlanta. And um, so it's amazing that there's a person who teaches science fiction <laughs> as a thing. I'm incredibly jealous of her career. Um, and she lectures on, the, you can find the, her lecture on this story um, on YouTube. Um, if you search this story on YouTube, it comes up. Um, but the author is Judith Merrill. And Judith Merrill was a part of the science fiction group called the Futurians. That was Isaac Asimov, Frederick Paul, who she was married to for a while. And um, she was a radical voice. She was an anarchist, Trotskyist, like, like in the 30s. And um, Judith Merrill eventually left the United States to protest the Vietnam War. And she ended up becoming a Canadian citizen. And she left behind the largest collection of science fiction in the world, supposedly, uh, to the library in Toronto. And um, when she, her only stipulation was that there be a bed in there that people could lay down and read books. So um, you can go down, go read that. Anyways, this story is called, is also in her best of Judith Merrill collection. And the story is called uh, Only a Mother. And it was written in 1948, and it is a post-nuclear war story about women giving birth to mutated children um, in the um, aftermath and the radiation uh, um, after nuclear war. And keep in mind, this is 1948 that this was written, um, and it was her second professional sale. <laughs> her first sale was a detective story, and this second one... Um, she was uh, a, a really amazing um, pioneer of science fiction. Um, and this story is brutal. You can read it multiple times and just you'll be flabbergasted that it was written in the 40s and so forth, thinking about the horrors of nuclear war. And it's just a really devastating read. And um, and then if you read it, then watch Lisa's lecture about it. You'll, it's just a really fun experience. I highly recommend doing it that way. So yeah, uh, Only a Mother by Judith Merrill. And more people should know Judith Merrill. We did a whole panel um, tribute and Lisa was on it on Dickheads. So you can find that too. I know I'm shamelessly plugging, plugging my podcast, my other <laughs> podcast a lot. Uh, so Mary, you're number four. All right, my number four. We're getting down to the big guys here. Uh, I, you know what I picked for my number four was The Things by Peter Watts. It's a probably, I think, of all the stories on the list, maybe one of the most recent. And I picked it because I've always been the, I'm, I'm, one, of my, one of my favorite movies of all time is The Thing. And uh, I think it is perhaps one of the most, and, and, and 
of of the two remakes of the book, I think John Carpenter's version is the superior one. Not that the original movie didn't have uh, its own innovations. It did. It, it, I think it won an award for like the dialogue. It was realistic. People overlap. They talked over each other. Things like that. It was. Uh, but I thought that John Carpenter's version just sort of perfectly captured paranoia and, and horror in its essence. What I liked about The Things, which is in essence a retelling of The Thing, but from the alien's point of view, uh, I it was, it puts an entirely, it shows how how much point of view in a story affects something. And I've always been a softie for the alien, the mutant, uh, the non-human creature in a story, um, maybe almost disturbingly so. Like I root for I root for the monster a lot of times because I think that there is something. There's a scene in the thing which I think probably perfectly encapsulates what you get when you read the things, which is the scene where uh, the creature has taken over one of the one of the crew and he's out and he's out in the snow and he's not the, the he's not quite finished changing yet so he looks mostly like the guy he'd taken over but he's got this sort of claw hand and he's on his knees in the snow and he looks up at the guy who's about to torture him with the flamethrower and for just a second i don't know how the actor did this but for just a second you can see the horror and the fear in this creature's face it knows what's going to happen to it and then they just set it on fire and it starts wailing. And, and um, it's the kind of thing where if you're rooting for the bad, for the good guys, as you probably should be, you might not even notice it. But the whole story of the things is this creature talking about how confused and scared it is because all it wants to do is share this experience, which is bigger than any one creature can possibly imagine that it has been to countless worlds it doesn't consider what it's doing killing anyone it doesn't consider what it's doing even assimilating it considers what it's doing to be sharing this multi-world experience this uh timeless experience from multiple viewpoints and 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 multiple places with this new race of creatures and it can't understand their hostility toward it and it's a survival story from the alien's point of view. And, and there's something just so, sometimes I think, and you see this more lately, sometimes they try to retell a story from the villain's point of view and it's hit or miss whether or not they nail it. But this story nails it in a way that is so beautifully tragic and still horrific because this creature doesn't recognize that what it's doing is essentially eradicating individuality. Uh, the right. things that make human beings human. I, I, when I heard about this story, I thought, wow, that's some balls uh, to, to, to write that story. And I poo-pooed it and, and I read it and it was really, really incredible. And I should say also that Peter Watts wrote a short novel called Freeze Frame Revolution a couple of years ago. It's one of the best that one of the best science fiction short novels that I've read in the last decade. And he is a, a brilliant writer. Um, so I was really happy to see that on, on, your, on your list. I'll be honest. I have never heard of this story. I did. I also read Freeze Frame Revolution. I thought it was a genius idea. Genius idea. 
And I, and again, the thing is one of my favorite movies and one of my favorite stories who goes there is one of my favorite stories. I definitely will be checking this out. I had no idea this even existed until it just came out of your mouth. There, Mary. Oh, so well, you. I think you'll love it. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure you can find it online. I, the first place it was, it, it was published, I believe was Clark's world magazine in 2010. Okay. But I think, um, I don't think I'd heard about it till till sometime after that, and I I'm pretty sure I found it somewhere online. So I, it might be it might be that um, you know he gave it some to some website to put up in case people want to see it because I really think if you love the thing, then you can appreciate the the uh, the effort that went into this this particular story. It's it's just it's really beautifully done. Yeah, he did a great interview with Gig Sky to the Galaxy about Freeze Frame Revolution where in the interview they talked about this story and um i highly recommend that interview as well because um that's why i ended up going and reading it was because i first when i when he talked about it i was like come on dude and then when he when he started talking about it, i was like okay come on dude let's do this and i wanted to read it so yeah great stuff laird you're number four all right uh just a quick sidebar there i or a continuation, I guess. I um, love Who Goes There. I would like to see a faithful adaptation of that because yes. nothing that nothing. Hawks may be a little more faithful. Carpenter's own thing, which yeah. is one of my favorite yeah. movies of all time. Yeah. Not a complaint, but, but it's I would not love to see. Yeah. It's in the milk. I would like to see the bloodless, almost bloodless adaptation of it because it was just for it was even more paranoid because the things were vying against each other in the. Um, it, right. Each entity was completely discreet. They did not root. They 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 did not cooperate. They were killing each other. Yeah, let's torch them or whatever they did. I don't think they torched mm -hmm. them in the original story. Uh, and the other thing I was going to say, I, I don't want this to be a spoiler, but I think it's important. So you, you set up the story beautifully, Mary. The ending is controversial uh, in the community, extraordinarily, for a couple of reasons. They're probably obvious, but also because of the effect that it has on everything that came before. Everything you said is brought into question by that last line of that story. Uh, it's point of view. Right. I think that's quasi-spoilery, but we're talking about quasi-fan fiction at the highest level right. of, of right. something we all know. So going into that story, that, that's another little tidbit about it. All right, so my number four, uh, by the greatest horror writer who's never going to be recognized as a horror writer, uh, Paul Bowles, uh, by The Water. Uh, and you can follow, you can, you can find this in his Delicate Prey. Once again, these are, these Paul Bowl stories were written in the late 40s, early 50s. I haven't checked, but that's kind of the time period. He lived uh, in Morocco. So a lot of his stories are set, you know, in Morocco or uh, South America. Some are set in Mexico. This one is kind of vague. I think it's set partially, at least partially in Morocco. But essentially, it's a story about a young guy uh kind of at loose ends i think he's potentially a grifter but it's really hard to tell he's definitely streetwise who decides that he wants to go just blow off some steam in another town i mean a lot of the, a lot of bowls stories are so interesting it's just people are just doing things there isn't like well the salesman is heading somewhere and it's very important I mean, he does that he does those but no somebody could just be like i was picking flowers i was I was having a picnic. I was just, I was just standing around and then some shit goes down. Uh, there's like no history, no backstory. It's just, yeah, in media res, I was just, you know, some shit started happening to me one day while I was like looking out at the ocean. So this guy goes to another town and what's, and what's really interesting is 
it's just the claustrophobic nature. He gets there, it's dark, he doesn't know the town very well, he wants to go to the baths. And the entire description of him being sort of ushered down through these layers of this old, like, stucco tenement building in the 1940s or 50s in a place that doesn't really value architectural safety or sanitation or any or lighting and it's just dark and this little kid comes up to him and says do you want to go to the to the pool to lat to lat was it lagraz's pool and he's like a pool i want the baths he goes it's the pool and they they go down this tunnel and the kid's holding his hand and they get down there and it's literally standing on a cliff with these stalactites hanging down looking at this, there's like two naked bulbs and then darkness beyond that goes, they say forever, essentially. And I don't want to spoil it, but basically the owner of the pool is someone who is, you kind of get the impression, possibly a crime lord, but even more importantly, like a mythological fi uh, figure to the people. They live in a superstitious awe or dread of this owner of the pool. And he tells the, the, our, our hero, you can't, be here get the hell out and the hero's like fuck off you know essentially and the the, the man uh has no arms no legs and kind of a flipper tail which sort of horrifies horrifies this guy this kid who's never encountered this before and he kicks him into the pool he just like a soccer ball just like poop and everybody is outraged and they and they start coming after him and the and the rest of the story develops from there him trying to get away well obviously it's it's one of the reasons i picked it is because Bowles is really, especially, you know, 50 years, 60 years on, Bowles is extremely problematic for various reasons. The world has moved on. Uh, I think he might have been problematic in his time. Uh, <laughs> and obviously, I think there's something to be examined very critically about horror that says that someone has, who has birth defects or uh, mental disability, uh, they're, they're not cishet, white. Oh, that's the object of horror, right? You know, that used to be a big part of horror. Oh, somebody's gay. That means they're, they're evil or there's something wrong. Someone has a birth defect. I think this works in spite of that. Like I would trigger, I would see, you know, content warning people that part of the horror, I think, in Bowles' mind was predicated upon this person, you know, basically having deformities. But I think it works uh, on a much more fundamental and primordial level because the other people there have accepted him. Uh, there, are, there are old men swimming with this guy. He has to come up out of the water like a seal and confront the intruder. Other people have made, they may be afraid of him, but they're swimming with him. They're not in any kind of terror. Their awe of him is more like Jesus is among us type of thing. Now he's mad today. Now I'm like, oh shit, I'm scared. But generally Jesus is a cool guy. So uh, I think it's very important for that. And the horror, so the horror really derives for me from the effect, the will. What kind of will does this person have? Because there's a point in the story where they go, where the guy thinks he's safe and he's out. He's like, he goes to a place in town where there's more lights and he's like drying himself off and he's kind of freaking out. But he thinks, okay, it's over. And this little urchin comes up and says, he's hunting you. You better come with me. And then it, it goes on from there and he has people out in the streets looking for him. And he may be looking for him. He says, he's going to turn you to a bird when they bring you back to him and all this horrible stuff. Uh, I could go on about this. This is, this is, this is what, and it, of course it has a traumatic ending. And so I included it as a, as a naturalistic horror story. It's not a quiet horror story. It's not, it could be supernatural, but it's almost like a, like a folklorish 
horror story, which I included instead of including Machen or Blackwood, because the, uh, the Wendigo or the um, uh, now I'm losing it. Oh, the Willows, Willows. would have been real, yep. would, would have been real solid choices for this mm -hmm. kind of thing, right? Right. But I decided to go with because they're they're, they're like uh, exemplars of the weird. Right. Mm. I feel like this is something. That, those are stories that people are probably heard of. They've even they even had to study them in class. This is something that most people are never going to run across because Bowles has completely fallen off the radar. Uh, genius writing and a, ge a genius sort of naturalistic uh, expression of the weird. It, 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 weird and horror. I mean, there, there's definitely horror, but that horror that that the weird we, we like to think of it as well, it's, it's got to be supernatural explicitly. And the reality is, no, we, we live in a weird world and we make up stories about the things that we, these people made up stories about this guy. And I think right. the, pow the, the power of storytelling is something that uh, is, is sort of a genuflection to that in this tale. Mm. Well, I've never read Paul Bowles. I, I got to be honest. And uh, uh, you've sold me completely. So I'll, I will be checking him out. Uh, um, it's brutal. He's brutal. Yeah. All right. Uh, Mark Rothenberg, you're number four. All right. Uh, going back to what Laird just said, which is sort of what defines horror. This is a relatively new story to me. I, I read it maybe a couple of years ago, and I was really blown away by it. It's... Uh, we're all familiar with the concept of, you know, the, the anthropomorphism of animals, watership down and, mm -hmm. you know, animals that, that think like humans. And, and there's a reason that animals, I don't think really think like humans. And I think this story defines that, which is the infamous Bengal Ming by Rajesh Parmameswaran. Now I haven't read anything else by, by this author. I read this on, um, I forgot what webs, Granada, I mean, a website about stories, and this was a love story, and it is a love story. It's from a book called uh, "The I Am the Executioner Love Stories," and it's about a tiger in a zoo. And this tiger named Ming, he's a Bengal tiger, uh, and it's told from his point of view, and and he's been cuckled by an, from his girlfriend by another male tiger. He's had a terrible life, but the one light spot in his life is he's in love. And the whole story starts off with the premise that he's in love and he's lo in love with his keeper, which is a guy named Kitch. And as I said, it's nice to read stories where animals think like humans. This story reminds you that animals are, well, and, and I know I'm talking to, to, to David Agardoff here, who, you know, <laughs> animals are to be respected. Animals are... There, there is a place. They're, they are to be respected. They're to be treated a certain way. They are to be cared for. But they are not humans. They are animals. And this story squarely falls into that. He, Kit shows up. But as, as the story goes on, you keep hearing little things in the back of this tiger's mind, which is, I'm kind of getting hungry. You know, he's talking, he's <laughs> telling all these great things about his, his life with, you know, the story about how he got cuckled by this other tiger named Maharaj and, and how Kitch is showing up and it's going to make it all great. And then Kitch doesn't show up and he's heartbroken. But in the back, he's like, what's that smell? I'm getting hungry. And frankly, it's instinct versus this anthropomorphism that, that pomorphicism, I suppose, uh, that, 
that really draws in the whore because in the end, he's a tiger. And mm-hmm. it's very clear, horrible things happen because you're not expecting them, I think, to happen in this story because you're like, hey, he's a talking tiger. Uh, no. Um, I've read this story. I have also listened to, there's an audio version of it I've listened to, which is done very well, I think, on Nocturnal Transmissions, which is a podcast which does sort of, you know, with sound effects and stuff. I think it's a very good story. Uh, again, it's, uh, yeah, you know, animals are animals and humans are humans. And there is a horror in that, in the way we sometimes think, oh, look, my dog's happy. He's wagging his tail when your dog is just like, give me food. <laughs> or, you know, I have a new cat and the cat meows a bunch. The cat's like, give me food. But that cat will tear into my corpse and eat me if I die. That's just the way it's going to be. I'm not going to, he's not going to mourn me. Uh, and you know what a tiger is going to do what a tiger is going to do and it is horrific and the end is very horrific uh, but beautifully written and it is a love story in the end but a love story that a tiger might say not like you know. <laughs> that sounds like a great there story yeah yeah I'll have to check that one out um, alright so my number four I could probably read the story faster than we've talked about most stories it's a very very short story and I got to talk about how I heard about this story because it was kind of a test of very early on in my time of being actually a part of the horror community I went to the Bram Stoker Awards in LA in 2004 and I heard this story being talked about by some luminaries in the field the late great Dennis Etchison and David Scow were talking about this story And I happened to overhear them talk about this story, about how it was such a brilliant story. And so I went out and got the collection that it was in. And it was the first story I read because I heard them talking about how brilliant it was. And I felt like a dummy because the first time I read it, I was like, what's the big deal? And this story is read by R.C. Matheson that was collected in Scars and other distinguishing marks by Richard Christian Matheson. The story is about a page and a half. And the first time I read it, I was just like, what? I, I don't even know what happened here. And then I was like, I told myself, well, these two brilliant writers said it was genius. So start over and read this page and a half again <laughs> and slow down and read the details. And this is a story that you could very easily just not catch what's happening. And then with one sentence at the end, you go, oh, shit. Okay. And it literally took me twice reading it. And then I said, oh, shit. Read by R.C. Matheson. I can't say much more about it. Um, Because we're talking about Richard Christian Matheson, we should mention that his father was also a brilliant short story writer. I could have picked a hundred different Matheson stories for, for, for this collection of, or for this list. And, uh, you know, it's really cool when you get a chance to, and I've had the chance to meet RC or to meet Richard Christian Matheson. And um, I've also had a chance to meet his father and the kind of brilliance The only time I've ever been starstruck the entire time I've been in this field was talking to Richard Matheson and talking to him about I Am Legend. And I literally was like almost crying because I was like, holy shit, this is the guy who 
this came out of his brain. Um, but I will say that this story read by R.C. Matheson, has anybody else here read that story? Um, I have not. No, okay. I have not. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really intense one. And um, hearing Dennis Atchison talk about it, because a couple of years ago, we had him as a guest shortly before he died at the Horrible Imaginings Film Fest. And I was curating the, the literary side of the festival. And so I got to revisit the story with Dennis and say like, hey, I read it because of you. And we talked about the story and um, another great crotchety writer, Dennis Etchison. Um, but uh, talking to him about the story was, was, was great. And Dennis Etchison could easily be on this list a thousand times. He is a, a fantastic short story writer. And if you ever got the chance to talk to Dennis about the craft of short stories um that was really a phenomenal experience for me and one of the things that he in relation to this story that he said to me personally was that this story is one of the best examples of a, of a of one line of dialogue crushing crushing the reader and what he related to it with me was, and look at who his father was and how his father was a master of the same thing. And specifically, we, we talked about the dog chapter in I Am Legend, which ends with a crushing last sentence. And what this pair, this father and son as writers were good at doing was having one line that kind of deconstructed everything that you read before it, so. Did you, David, have you ever read, and, and when you were just speaking about the one line aspect, the first thing that came to mind, coincidentally, totally, was Richard Matheson's uh, story, um, uh, Dress of White Silk. Did you ever read that? I'm sure you Oh have. yeah, of you, course I have, yeah. And, and, and the first time I read that when I was young, when I was much younger, I read it and I was like, I'm missing something here. And I had to carefully read that story again. And you get what was going on there, right? And, yeah. and you just and, said that. It yeah. was very much that reminded me of that story. Yeah. And Red is an example of I felt really dumb, you know, yeah. when, uh, when I figured was, it. I was like, why didn't I get this the first time? And and maybe I've overhyped it for everyone out here. But I, but I could just tell you that that was my experience and that's why it's my number four story. Um, and it's funny because when I first started this list, it was on my honorable mentions and then I read it again. <laughs> and I bumped it all the way up to number four because I kept like pitting this story versus that story and it made it all the way to four. So uh, Mary, you're number three. I think this author is going places. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, know, I already made that joke, but... <laughs> by this newbie Stephen King. Uh, there are a number of his stories, particularly, um, you know, par particularly, you know, the old stories, but there's a couple of new ones that I debated putting on this list other than this one story. But this one story for me captures what I think the appeal of Stephen King is, and it's, that's The Monkey. And it's a story essentially about a man and uh his sons but it most of the story takes place in a flashback to when he was a kid 
And it, it follows along the same lines of a, uh, what I think of as push the button stories, you know, like you push the button, but you're not really sure what's going to happen, but you know, it's going to be something bad, but for whatever reason you push the button. And what I think King does pretty masterfully is that at some point you don't even have to push the button. The button starts pushing itself. And it's basically about this guy, Hal, who finds a toy monkey, one of those monkeys that do have the little symbols that, that crash together. And he manages to make this toy absolutely terrifying. Mm -hmm. And I, to me, it's, it's, it's one of the perfect examples of what I always thought Stephen King did best. He takes your basic, you know, your average, your average Joe and puts them into a supernatural situation that um, is just kind of on the fringe of reality. And it's just horrible enough that uh, it, it's not over the top, you know, it, 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 it's just horrible enough that you almost feel like it could happen. And, and you know, even in a supernatural sense, you know, sometimes, sometimes it, it, you know, the, the concepts are weird, like, you know, fingers in a drain or, you know, whatever the case is. But, but this one, I think, really captures what I, he, he, he gives you the same feeling reading these stories that you get when you're young and you're about, you're about to go out Friday night, you know, that sort of excitement you have that it's a summer night. It's going to be warm. Your friends are going to be there. It's going to be great. That's the kind of feeling you get diving into a Stephen King story, especially the old ones. Um, and I think that this one sort of captures that maybe better than most. And like I said, there were a number I, I could have put on, I could have put N, I could have put the reach, um, I could have put I'm the doorway, you know, but what made me love Stephen King's work, what, what really solidified me as a fan of his work, of all the things, all the novels, all the short stories he's ever written, was this story. Because I read it as a kid, so I could understand it from the kid point of view. I reread it as an adult, and I could understand it from the parents' point of view, and it just, it works for me on multiple levels. Mm. Yeah, and, um, Spoiler alert, we have another story from uh, Skeleton Crew on this list, um, but I do think Skeleton Crew is when King was at the height of his powers, and mm -hmm. just um, that collection is just unfuckwithable oh, yeah. um, on many levels. Um, Laird, your number three. Yeah, two things. Uh, I love that story, and I agree with the other alternate picks, Mary, and also um, I have to say, my favorite of all of his short stories. Uh, not, I'm not saying it's his best, just my fav personal favorite was The Last Rung on the Ladder. Um, oh, that's a great one. That's well, just because I lived in the woods and we were in, I was, my brothers and I were left alone all the time at, for like up to weeks at a time. And we depend on one another. And we're talking like 12, 13, 10. My mm -hmm. youngest brother was six, you know, five, six years old. So I, that really hit me. The, the two kids, the, the kids that had to just have absolute trust. Right. But, um, yeah, it's a wonder, wonderful pick. Uh, so uh, for my, uh, let me pull up my little thing here. My third, um, it's by a, a writer that I really admire. Uh, this story was first appeared in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction as so many great stories, including the Dark Tower uh, novellas. You know, they were released as a serial novel. It was all this great stuff. Many of the authors we've talked about 
uh, were in there. But Ray Vukcevich, uh, he he wrote a couple novels. He wrote some collections. Uh, one of my very favorites is called uh, Whisper. And this came out, um, I want to say, like in the mid-aughts, something early aughts, something like that. Uh, and I include it on my list because, well, why the hell not? It's really a great story. But also, it's it has a little humor in it because Vukcevic is typified, his writing is typified by a very light touch. It's very intricate. He's also a, a master of digression. He'll He'll lead you he'll lead you, you know, into these greener pastures. And then you take a, you take a, you take a, a very sharp turn at some point. Uh, may even end up, you may even, you, you may even do a 180. But the bottom line is, is this story is about a guy whose uh, girlfriend has left him because he's essentially just hopeless. He's not even a bad guy. It's just, I'm tired of you, Bill, type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the way, you snore, slam. <laughs> and he's like, I don't, like she's given him this laundry list of dissatisfaction but it's the it's the snoring and he's just like which i, I guess is probably revelatory about why she left him he's like hell with all the other stuff I, I snore i don't snore but now he's talking to the door and he's like well fine we'll settle this so he goes out and he gets himself a long running tape and he puts it in and he takes some cough syrup or whatever and he knocks himself out and then he plays it fast forwards the next day to hear if he snores and he's chagrined to find out God damn, I snore. I snore really loud and I fart and all this other stuff. Holy cow. Hmm. But then he hears voices like somewhere around two, you know, whatever the dead dread hour of the wasteland of night is, he hears these voices and it's a man and a woman. And they're from, he deduces, I, I forget what he did for a living. It's an office job, but he's, but his brain's bigger than whatever the job is. And so he's like a hobby, you know, he's one of those hobbyists, chemistry, paleontologist, Auntie drew types and so he's like oh she must from the from the way they're standing this is where they're standing in the room and and they're they have this cryptic conversation there's nothing really sinister but it's just like oh he's so cute when he's sleeping and, and a couple things like that and i won't i won't give you any more uh than that i think that should be enough but he goes through hell to try to to catch to catch them in the catch them in the act to find out what's what's really going on here what, uh, what era was this published in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction? I want to say 2002 or. Okay. It could, it could even be the late, late nineties, but I want to, it feels like it was early aughts because uh, or maybe, or maybe that was when it was collected and meet me in the moon room. A lot of his stories have to do with surrealism. Mm-hmm. Uh, like there'll be these weird stories, like where a couple, like there's one where there's a couple sitting on a couch and they're chatting and he goes, I wonder they're talking about parallel universes. And she puts a bag over her head. And she goes, I'm in another universe. And he puts a bag over his head. And sure enough, he, he can see there's like this whole vista opens up. And then, and then there's these weird things that, that telescope from there. And he wrote some, uh, I won't say hard science fiction, but from very straightforward science fiction that make you ball like a baby at the end. And then he would write these kind of quirky stories that had a dagger. They didn't always see the thing, the, the thing that really made him dangerous or makes him dangerous is you don't know when that's going to happen. Some of these writers, oh, it's going to happen. That's that's the, the fun of it. Him, it may not happen in the story. It may just you may just be really worried all the way through, and it's like and it's over. You're like, okay. <laughs> then the next story, he gets you. But um, Whisper is, I would say, one of the great. I I would put it as like one of the classic horror stories. There's like an element of a. There's almost like a ghost story aspect to it. 
in the it sense sounds that sounds awesome. Like, I, I well, uh, it. Yeah, yeah, like they're like they're phantoms. Uh, fact, I think Small Beer Press makes it available online as a free as a free sample. It is worth the twenty minutes of your time to, to read, and I'll I'll leave it at that. It's just a, it's uh, has one of the last. I, I would say right up there with. Um, where the summer ends i was bragging about that mm -hmm. earlier mm -hmm. it's also on that title line with all the eastwood and, and newman and everybody gets top billing it's 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 a fantastic class line mm, okay mark rothenberg you've got a classic here too yeah i again another story i just love uh read it early in my life and i'll i'll every once in a while I'll pick it up and reread it and that is pigeons from hell by uh, mm. Robert Howard. I think, yeah. I love, first of all, I love stories that take place in the backwoods somewhere in Louisiana or, you know, I, I, the choir of ill children. I love some backwoods shenanigans, right? And this story has that. I also <coughs> love the the concepts of, of uh, cultural supernatural aspects. And this has that in there too. And this story is it's basically two travelers. It's, I think it was written in the 1930s. Two travelers driving down the road. They come to a, a mansion, an abandoned plantation. They go inside. Uh, they spend the night. One of them gets horribly murdered in the middle of the night. The other one freaks out, trying to figure out what to do. And the sheriff shows up. And the sheriff just happens to be coming back from where he was going, doing sheriff things. And he's like, hey, uh, what are you talking about? And they go inside and Sheriff explains that there's some history behind this place. It's called the Blassenville Manor and the family owned slaves and, and they were horrific people and they treated people, their, their servants and their slaves poorly. And, uh, but he doesn't believe that there's anything supernatural going on, just sort of stories about the place. And then it turns out, no, he was horribly wrong. There's absolutely supernatural stuff going around. And, but to determine it, they, they go see one of one of the uh, people who was alive back then, who happens to be living in in a uh, in like a shack, and oh, wow, Laird just got really small. Uh, <laughs> he's living in a shack. He did. It's weird. Uh, that was that's horror right there. Uh, he's living <laughs> in a shack, and, and and he tells him this story and the the story of zombies and Haiti and Zuvembes and. And all of this thing, and it, it all really comes together really, really well. And again, the end of the story isn't what you would have expected because you would expect, oh, this totally makes sense why this happened. But there's a bit of a twist at the end, and it, it, hits, it hits the story really well with the beats that go on. Uh, there is an adaption of it I remember seeing a long time ago on Boris Karloff's show Thriller, which I thought was done really well. Again, it's just... Oh, I've seen when that one. It's really good. I saw the title of this. Yeah. Yeah. I, I first saw the title of this story and I was like, before I ever read it, I'm like, Pigeons from <laughs> Hell, yeah. I guess. But, you know, I, I liked Robert Howard. I liked the Conan stuff. And this kind of was my first diversion outside of that Conan realm. Uh, and man, uh -huh. it still stands up today. Like I said, I just reread this stuff in the past couple of weeks. It's just a great story. On a side note, you reminded me that Boris Karloff's thriller also did a pretty good adaptation of Yours Truly, Jack the Ripper by um, Robert Bloch. Yes. And, um, my, which, my wife got me that a couple of years ago. I, I still watch it. It's great. Yeah, um, that also, which was also made into a Star Trek episode, not so well. Um, 
but uh yeah pigeons <laughs> from hell is is a classic uh i, I do uh love that story does anybody else have anything they want to say about robert howard before we move on because i know he's a big subject but uh, love him yeah 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 i i um yeah, you really can't go wrong with Robert Howard. And I think the tortured nature of his life is, is really bleeds through on the page. And that's one of the things that appeals to me about Robert Howard is because it kind of feels like you're reading a, a, a jagged, rusted edge of a knife whenever you're reading his story. Oh, it's rough. It's rough. This story is rough. I mean, yeah. on the surface, it's not. On the surface, you're like, oh, you know, okay, it's a story about this, this, and this. But it's really not, right? It. Again, it is like you're reading something jagged and rusty and crotchety and angry. There's some anger to it, right? Yeah. Uh, but again, yeah. Conan the Barbarian. So there you go. Now, my number three, I almost didn't, like I hesitated with this one because it's a very popular story. And my number one, the same thing. But I had to because it's just a foundational story for me as a reader. And I think it's a classic for a reason. Um, and I, I considered many, many stories by this author. And uh, Mark, you have this author for number two with one of the story with the story that I debated. So uh, you really hooked me up with that. Uh, but this story is uh, Midnight Meat Train by Clive Barker. And um, this to me is Clive Barker on the map. This is Clive Barker like laying down the gauntlet this is the story that that um on the surface it could look like just a gory like killer story but there's like all the weird like cult stuff going on underneath the surface there's so many levels to midnight meat train that um that, that there's just so much going on there that i think you know, whereas like in the hills and the cities, for example, is a story that shows how weird he could be. And the one that you picked, Mark, um, shows how weird you can be. And there's something to that, too, to the fantasy level. But just for a just sheer, like, make your gut twist weird story that is still effective when you read it now, um, even with the eh, kind of movie that got made that we can just kind of put out of our memory. Um, the, the story um, just works. So I think uh, my number three is Midnight Me Train by Clive Barker. Um, I just, I think it's one of his best. Um, even, even though the title makes me cringe because the vegan in me just, you know, a, a little <laughs> bit. But anyways, um, uh, anybody uh, want to comment on? Well, we're going to talk more about Clive Barker in a little bit. But anybody... I don't know why the ve I don't know why the vegan in you makes you cringe with that title because let's be honest, that's not the kind of meat we're talking about on that. Train. So... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, Midnight Meat Train, great story. That's my number three. So, um, and um, Mary, your number two is a novella um, and an author who I'm just so glad is on this list somewhere that we get a chance to talk about. Um, Mary, tell us what your number two is. My number two is Safe by Gary Bronbeck. And I, I you know, of all the, of all the, the fiction that I've read of Gary's, uh, all of it has that sort of that heartbreaking, soul-crushing, <laughs> 
you know, like poor yes. kicked puppy dog kind of quality to it. But uh, this one, I think impressed me on, again, it was, it was a multiple level thing. It impressed me as a reader because it is, it is basically just one gut punch after another and the gut punches just get harder and harder and harder. Uh, but as a writer, there is a, a deftness to the way Gary approaches things. And I'm not sure if it's in his description or in just the, the aching and, and glaringly obvious vulnerability that is just inherent in, in, in all of his work, but in particularly in this one. And it's about something which when I read it predated actual, like the, the, the increasing rash of school shootings. And so it struck me as something I think horrific, more so because at the time it wasn't as commonplace a thing. I mean, it, it's horrific that it, that you could ever even say that school shootings are a commonplace thing. But um, I had read it before they had regular, you know, lockdown procedures and things like that. And there are certain places that we just assume are always going to be safe. Uh, we more or less assume our office buildings when you go to work are going to be safe. You assume your home is going to be safe. And in a, a further step removed, you assume that a school is going to be safe because you're entrusting those people with the most precious thing in your life, which is your children. And that it would not only not be safe, but not be safe because of one of those children, I think is a terrifying concept. And he manages to do it in a way that is both heart, well, it's heartbreaking and it's horrific, but it's also sensitively done. And for being as, as brutally honest about the topic as it is, and as unflinchingly violent as it is, it's still, it, it, it manages to be more a story of actual horror. You're, it's not so much a, a, you're, where you're, you're scared that something's coming up behind you kind of thing. It's a story where you're horrified that these events are taking place. It's, it, to me, it's true horror in that truest sense that it, it elicits that emotion of, of horror uh, in this kind of um, uh, un, un, uh, unstoppable violence because I don't think, I, I think it, it, people are just shocked mm -hmm. and, 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 and sort of blown over. And that's how you feel when you're reading it. And it's, it's just, it's so powerful and incredibly done. And I, I've been, for like the 20 years that I've known Gary, <laughs> every time people ask me, what's one of your favorite you know, short stories? I always mention that one because it has stuck with me that well and that long. Uh, I haven't read this. Where can I find that? I believe it's in his, one of his, I think it's in one of his Cedar Hill collections. Um, oh, I can't remember the name of it. Uh, I'm drawing a blank. It's the one with the, grave, the graveyard, I think. Well, um, and, and reading a Gary Brombeck story like is like that moment when you twist a rag to get the, the, the final little bits of water out. It's like <laughs> his pain and de his pain, like just it feels like that moment when you're squeezing the last bits. Out. I, there's nothing like the feeling of 
sadness and pain in a Gary Brombeck story. Yes. Um, You know, it's just, you know, and then when you meet him and it's just like, you just want to, you just want to hug the guy. (laughs) (laughs) Like, it's okay. Did you feel he needs it? Is that why? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry. I can't remember the name of the, the, the collection I had read it in. Um, I'm sure you'll track it down. Peter Hill story, I think. But if, yeah, if I can get it, I, I can email it to, to David to give to you. Great um laird you're number two yeah um you know i couldn't put peter straub on here and i would have to say of almost any author peter straub probably is the most um influential i mean there's a lot there's louis lamore there's robert e howard i was reading him when i was like a my first conan story but um there's a bunch this is this is another one though. I'll pick another New Yorker that I can, the guy I never met, never hung out with, um, who has influenced me, especially the last 20 years or so for a certain type of writing that I that I try because I this guy does it so well. And that's uh T D Klein, mm-hmm. uh PD, which is in his, I would say, much like Polyphemus by Shea, it's a landmark collection, um, four novellas. And uh I selected, you know, I could have selected any of those. They all are master classes, not just horror, but of, of the, of the discipline of uh, novellas. Um, but I picked Petey uh, because it's a the word I'm looking for. It is so much of the seventies and how it is. Uh, there's like this Gothic seventies, Gothic sensibility. Like you could just feel the dark ages of suburbia uh in all his work but in that one especially and it's basically it's a story about a a fairly uh well-off you know middle upper middle class crowd of people that come to a housewarming at this mansion that and i i hesitate to say that there's a pov it's that there's like 30 people in this story and they're all pretty much equally important or disposable depending on how you look at it but he just it's like you know what it look the story is written in a lot of ways like a one shot track tracking shot there's so i mean not all of it but huge chunks wow. of it are just i hadn't thought it, of it that way that's great yeah you could true. you can see he, he he writes it so smoothly that you can see the camera moving just following feet and then legs and then cocktail gla- and you could just see like it, what it it'll pull back and you'll see the whole room the voice is intercutting whenever i need to depict a group of people three more than three more than four more than five when i want to decrypt or excuse me depict a group of people like a party speaking i look at this story because everybody in this story has speaking roles and he really dispenses with a lot of notions uh of dialogue attribution how you have to do it what's important and what's not the story is one long digression and essentially it's this housewarming party it's somewhere in connecticut uh, and they got this, you know, the guys bragging and you know, imagine like in Gilligan's Island, imagine like the house, it's this kind of a crowd, you know, <laughs> the professor might be there, but he's like looking at the, the weird sculptures and going, and these, this library that has silver bugs crawling through it or silverfish crawling through it and going, huh, uh, vermis, what, necronama, what, you know, he's, he's, he's like looking at this stuff and it's all happening. And then meanwhile, the, the ex-owner of the home is in an asylum and it's intercut with him 
I, I believe he's bitten out his tongue or otherwise he's incapacitated and he's trying, he's getting more and more agitated about his pet that he had to leave behind when they clean the house out and the, and the home, the new homeowners bragging about, well, I got it for nothing. I can't believe it. Like 20 acres here in upstate Connecticut, my goodness. And all this, it was a filthy pigsty. I mean, it was like uh, just annihilated, but it was worth it to have a crew come in here. Uh, the, the building dread is, is quite palpable. And like I said, it's, it's so much of the seventies. It's so much of the time period without really even going into that. Because uh, I believe the story was published like in 85 or something. I'm not sure where it first appeared. It would have been late 70s. But without a lot of landmarks of that time period. I mean, it's timeless in the sense it could be set today. Uh, but it just has this Vincent Price, Boris Karloff, uh, old you know, Jack Nicholson when he was young and fresh. Nobody knew who he was when he was in some of those Hammer films. This like the haunted house that everybody's living in doesn't realize that it's haunted. Uh, I really, I, I really cannot recommend that highly enough. Dark Gods is for years has been my my writing bible. I have Ghost Story and Dark Gods, you know, usually pretty near my my writing area. Mm. Well, you know, I, I used to have a rule that if you see a TED Klein book at a used bookstore, you get a copy, and yep. and and you have as many copies as you need, so you always have one that's not torn up. Yeah, <laughs> but you can read the other ones. And literally, like, if I, I, like, it doesn't, there have been times where I've had four copies of Dark Good. Gods. Get, get me one, because you know what? I can't find one in Indiana <laughs> in a used bookstore. They're just not. You, won't. I, 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 been looking, you know I why? Because I bought all of them book. in Indiana when I yeah. used to live there. I yeah. beat you to it. I, I <laughs> certainly can't find it at Caveat Emptor. I can't find it anywhere. I went to Bloomington to look. All right. Well, His yeah, stuff is, it's never criminal. Left. His stuff is not in print. No, no TD, TED Klein book would remain alive with me being in there. So, uh, Mark, I will mail you a copy here soon. Um, I'm pretty sure I still have. Uh, dude, I don't. You know, you, and, and this is getting on a diversion for a long time, and David remembers this, hopefully. Maybe he does. No, he said he didn't remember this. I was looking for a copy of I Am Legend when it was out of print. And actually, I went to the Lilly Library in Bloomington, and I read an original copy of it. But Agarnoff at his house goes, hey. I've got a copy of it. And I go, what? <laughs> and he gives me Omega Man, the novelization of Omega Man, which was the original story. They didn't, you know, write a novelization, make a movie in the novel. So I still owe David for that. I mean, it's, and now you yeah. can get I Am Legend anywhere, but thanks to Will Smith. But granted, at that point, it was great. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. So, but back to T.E.D. Klein, um, I think that's amazing, Laird, that you use it as a, a, a writing Bible that um, that PD is, is um, it's, I've never thought of it that way, but that's brilliant talking about it as a tracking shot. It's, it, it really, it's, it's incredible that way. Yeah. That's a great analogy. Anything else you want to say about TED Klein before we move on? No, I just think he's an important, extremely important writer, especially to the horror. Uh, if you want to be a horror writer, I think he is essential to at least, give him a he and wagner bradbury those are those are people i would i would say check out yeah and um his influence as an editor as well as uh, absolutely twilight zone yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. but yeah. those of us of all of our age we all read twilight zone magazine so yep um oh yeah yeah so that's where that's where we read a lot of this stuff and you know and and got a lot of our recommendations for novels with the book reviews as well 
so twilight zone magazine was a big deal um all right mark um your number two yeah as you've already said my number two is by clive barker this uh you know and his, his stories are fantastic you know he's the future of horror as stephen king said uh, right there on books of blood right he's labeled on there in damnation game but this story again stuck with me i loved it the body politic um mm -hmm. This comes out of uh, the Inhuman Condition, which was Books yep. of Blood Four, uh, and, and it, it means a little bit more to me now, and I'll explain that. But but basically, it's about two hands who meet on a guy's stomach in the middle of the night, and they start a revolution, <laughs> and it, it turns into this Gonzo crazy. I mean, man, that last scene in the story—not the last last scene—but there's just just visualizing what's happening at this hospital where it starts off one hand cuts off the other and that hand is supposed to go get raise an army and come back and cut off right who's going to be the messiah and, and so they end up at a ymca and there's just hands being cut off left and right and it's just it goes crazy the horror of it i mean it's weird no doubt and and, and it's gory the horror of it really comes home to me in the past couple of years I had three years ago, I had surgery, some intestinal surgery. And after that, I started having muscle spasms in my legs that were, and they still happen today. And they were like fasciculations. And of course, what freaked me out about that is it's one of the first signs of ALS. I went to a neurologist, a couple different neurologists, and they said they did some tests on me. Thankfully, it was nothing. It's called benign fasciculation syndrome. And I go, well, how long is this going to last? Because I don't like not being in control of my body. It could last the rest of your life. We don't know what causes it and there's no solution. The good thing is it's not gonna kill you. Well, thank you. I can still tell you when I fall asleep at night, I can still feel my legs moving. Like, it feels like bugs crawling. And, and it occurs to me, well, crap. That <laughs> is kind of what Charlie dealt with when this started. And it was super weird. Cause again, body horror is one of my favorite i mean in some ways it grosses a lot of people out right they're like oh uh, you know possessor or or what I, you know david cronenberg but to me i don't get scared by a lot of things but i find that disturbing not being able to control your own body and this story literally he can't control his own body because once he realizes what happened what's happening his hands it's the jig is up his hands are like the emperor has no clothes we are going to cut your other hand off. Uh, for a while, they're doing things in secret. At a point, they're like, no, nah, let's just start. And it becomes this, again, great imagery where Barker describes these hands hanging on a tree, right? And it's almost like fruit being born on this tree. Again, just uber creepy, uber imagery. I don't know why out of all of his stories, that story has really stuck with me. Certainly, it's not the most, most horrific one, but I, I just, again, I just love it. And I see myself saying that about a lot of these stories, but I just love the body politic. This is my copy of The Inhuman Condition that I have had since eighth grade. <laughs> um, and the, the body politic was a foundational story for me, too, because it was the first time I ever saw surrealism working in horror. And as a as an eighth grader reading it, like that I understood that this is just super weird. And it was a, a lightning bolt moment for me because it was like, hey, you can do whatever you want to do. 
with or you can do what you can make up any weird shit you can have hands meeting on somebody's stomach to have a revolution which is just <laughs> super weird but that scene that particular scene is such great paranoia it, it um it, it the idea that when you wake up like hey have my hands been up to something while i've been asleep is um is philip k dick level paranoia um and uh i'm impressed by that um i actually um a couple of years ago taught uh writing a horror class for the horrible imaginings film fest and uh, my number one story and the body politic are the two stories that i taught in that class so i mean people People sleepwalk. Why couldn't again your body do whatever it's going to do? Uh, yeah, I would say that I think his most revolutionary story that just like broke the mold is in the hills, uh, in the city, in the hills. Uh, mm -hmm. I think um, it is both body horror, kind of cosmic, just yeah. kind of all weird. Mm -hmm. It's and it was also the first story where he had an out character as well, so um, which was important for for him um all right my number two and then i'm because i don't i think it'll be anticlimactic if i do number one last because of my particular story um i'm just going to do my two and one and then i'm going to i'm just going to switch up the order a little bit so just so everybody knows um my number two is um any corpse by brian evanson um i couldn't not have a brian evanson story on here because he's become my my like absolute favorite short story writer in, in the modern and it's hard because i've become very friendly with brian i've had him on the podcast multiple times um we brought him down to horrible imaginings and um but any courts and listen there are like 15 or 20 brian evanson stories that i could put on this list um and i know i just got um rothenberg to read evanson for the first time recently yeah yeah <laughs> um, which i loved yeah and then but this story any courts has one of the great opening sentences um Probably my favorite opening sentence of all time is Gone South by Robert McCammon. But up there with it is when she awoke, a shower of flesh had fallen in the field, um, which is the first opening sentence of any corpse. Um, it might be the most grim story I have ever read. It's a surreal horror story about um, the cannibal trade and what appears to be after the fall of society. Um, to say the story is bonkers is kind of um, understating it. It's disturbing, but one of the things about Brian uh, Evanson that makes him such a great writer is that he does, he has beautiful prose with all the disturbing stuff that's going on. And um, I just love that he um, will like, use the same name of the character like three times in the same story and not care um if he wants to and he he's he breaks the rules and doesn't give a shit um if it works and i'm sure it's quite a headache for for the editors that work with him because sometimes he just does that and in his last book um uh i'm the glassy burning floor of hell <laughs> right which is just an amazing title to begin with there's a story called nameless citizen 
and so it's funny because when I got to the title and I saw Nameless Citizen, I, I was like, well, you know, the character is going to be called Nameless Citizen throughout the whole thing. And, and it was, but it, it worked in a way. And I just think he's the best, um, uh, best short story author working. Um, he's like Clive Barker and Thomas Ligotti and Laird Barron uh, all wrapped into one. Um, and I um, say that even though Laird's looking at me, which is kind of weird. Um, <laughs> with, with mounting, with mounting rage. Yes. <laughs> but um, that's kind of creepy in and of itself. If that's your mounting rage face. Yeah, um, I have. I'm, I get when I get mad, I get flat affect. Yeah. No, I'm kidding. Go ahead. I just think Brian Evanson. Um, uh, he's got a lot of tip tree in there. He's got a lot of Ellis Sheldon. You know, he teaches genre uh, and fairy tales and all these things because it all comes out in this fiction and um it, it's just um you every word that you read of his whether it's his alien tie-in novel or it's his most esoteric surreal fiction just uh bleeds genius i love brian evanson as as an author and he's a pretty cool dude too so um, that's it. And then um, I'm going to start number one here. And I'm sorry, unless anyone wants to say anything about, about Brian Evanson. Um, well, well, you said you just turned me on to him and you did. And I had to pause. I was about to read Immobility. Uh, man, I read Last Days. And like, I think I texted you when I was like 20 pages into it. And I go, yeah, it's it's got me hooked. It's just, it was totally surreal. It just was. And I was like, wow. Well, okay, I'll just go with it. And I did. And I'm happy I did. And I, I can't wait to read. I have Collapse of Horses, which I haven't read. I'm looking forward to just digesting all and, of this. And stuff. that is the collection that has any corpse in it, um, yeah. is a Collapse of Horses. I should should mention that. But any collection of Brian Evanson is worth reading. Um, anything uh, by Brian Evanson is worth reading, even like the BK Evanson, like kind of more commercial tie-in stuff is great. So, um, any, anybody else on Brian Evanson or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fuck that guy. Um, no. <laughs> said too many nice things. Dude, it's a flat affect. He's right. <laughs> no, but, uh, no, he's one of the great writers. Uh, also immobility is one of my very favorite. I got to tell you guys a quick, just a real quick Brian Evanson story. This is why it's all, I'm just kind of sitting here because he wrote immobility. And I thought that was a genius short novel so or genius. novel right really so good genius. and like everything i mean the guy's a great writer and he wrote a story i don't remember the title now but there's a one-eyed character got his eye put out when he was a kid and really suspiciously familiar type of character and at the end he dedicated to mike cisco i'm like you motherfucker you weren't <laughs> writing about michael cisco who admit it and john langan kind of got in his face but i never said anything i was just like huh it was a great story. I wasn't offended or anything. I thought it was cool. <laughs> so we were sitting, we, I, I think it was the second time I'd met him. We, we had hung out at world fantasy in San Jose back in 2009. So this is like 2012, something like that stormy day, winter's day in Providence. And we're all having, we're all having a dinner and he's sitting right next to me on my blind side. So I kept having to turn my head, look at him and chat with him. And then Brian, then Langan, who is one of the, 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 the biggest, instigators that has ever existed in our field goes well you know you were kind of rude dedicating that story he was he's just kidding but he's like you were kind of rude dedicating that story to michael cisco when it was obviously you were 
poaching on Laird Barron's childhood and writing about him? Why didn't you have the nards to just admit it was for him? And, and of course, it's just totally pulled his leg, but he did it kind of jokingly seriously. And I'm sitting there and he looks at me, he goes, oh, well, are, did I? Oh, you know, like he, he's a sweet guy. Yeah. And, I, and he goes, he said something to me. And I put my fork down. I was just like this. I went, well, to be honest, Brian. Yeah. Yeah, it did piss me off. And I just went off on him slightly. And he he was just like, you could just see, the, he was just like, oh my God, what have I done? And I, then I laughed, I pat him on the arm. And I said, no, it's okay. And then I wrote a story, you know, about him uh, called Mobility a couple years ago. About this guy that gets dissected and by the end of the story, he's a head hanging off a tree. But um, that's, so that's, my, that's my funny Brian Evans' story. He's, he's a sweet man. Very sweet. And... Uh, we liked we liked to, to mess with him that one time. That was a, that was actually a high point of my trip to Providence. Yeah, Man, and- I don't to remind me not to hang out with you guys very much. That's brutal. <laughs> Sounds um, great. Well, uh, another good one is his tour novella, The Warren, which yep. um, we did a um, a bonus episode on Dickheads where we broke down The Warren with Brian, and um, I would say also too that and I'm I'm this is the same podcast, but. I had him on for glassy burning floor of hell and um, <coughs> I really picked apart those stories. So if you, I really feel like he taught a lot about writing stories in that. And um, he gave me a hard time that I gave away all of his secrets um, in that interview. So uh, I definitely think people, if you should check out that interview, we also had him on on dickheads to talk about a canticle for Leibowitz and his commentary on canticle for Leibowitz was really great as well. So, um, wind eye, wind eye is, I haven't read the latest, but my wind eye is my favorite collection by him. It's one of my favorite collections. I, everybody should go get that. I mean, yeah. or you get any of them. Any of them. Yeah. yeah. Wind eye is, I can just speak personal experience. That's, that's one of the great collections. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I will uh, back immobility. I'm looking, I'm excited to hear what you think, Mark. Um, uh, if, if Hollywood came with a bazillion dollars and said you could adapt any novel right now and we won't stop you because it's how, of how weird it is, I would do Immobility um, because it's, it, it's just a, a bonkers story. It's great. Um, I love <coughs> it. All right, my number one, and then I'm gonna, um, I, I, I will work into the order a little differently so we can end on uh, um, one, on a story that two of you had. Um, but my number one is Stephen King and it's The Raft. And I don't think The Raft is his best by any stretch of the imagination, but it's a story that um, I've taught. I taught it at uh, Horrible Imaginings. Um, it is the story that I have multiple times said was the light bulb story that taught me how to be a storyteller um, because it was the first time I read a story. And I went into length about this story in my uh, Only Good Indians interview with Stephen Graham Jones because we both, he had a similar experience with the with this story. And so we talked about it a lot. And I know Keen is a big fan of this story too. So I think we talked about it in my Keen interview as well. So I've talked a lot about this story, so I'm not going to go too much into it. But The Raft is the story where I could see everything he was doing to manipulate me as a reader. I could see every rung in the ladder that I was climbing. And every 
time that he set up something that was going to be scary or was going to be weird or freak me out or be the next step of the story is so in plain sight in the raft that you could look at it and say, it's not a great story because it's a very obvious story. But to me, it is one that is so perfect in its execution that um, for a very simple concept and it was poorly adapted in Creepshow 2, um, but the story itself is frightening. It sets up isolation. It builds the characters. It builds, it has a ticking clock that builds. It has suspense. It has weirdness that you can't explain. And to me, it has everything, every tool in the toolbox. And it's a perfect example of, it's the best horror short story for teaching the form mm. there is. And that is why it's my number one, because you can teach the form um, because it's it's so simple. Another one that you could do that with is um, there's a, a Robert McCannon story, a Halloween story that's in Blue World. I think it's something, I can't remember the title. That would be a good one to teach too. Um, I believe it's He Always Comes Knocking, I think is the name of the story. Um, the Robert McCammon one. But I've, I've considered teaching that one as well um, in the past. So yeah, The Raft. I don't know if anybody has anything they want to add about The Raft, but that's my number one. It's a good story. Yeah, yeah, I love that story. What I loved about The Raft, and I, I agree with you, Dave, because I think we did talk about this long ago when Creepshow 2 came out, is they really lost, I mean, mechanically, they put what they needed to for that adaption. But what they don't deal with is at the end of the raft, the main character, well, the character who's still there. I, again, it's it's one of those, and Stephen King does it so well, it's that inevit inevitability of the dark fate. He accepts it. He accepts what's going to happen to it. As a matter of fact, he's like, hey, it looks kind of, nice maybe because it looks so those colors look so nice i'll be okay uh yeah yeah i i just think that it's it's really good and i think that is lost certainly in that adaptation and uh there's a lot more going on than just simply a lake blob in that story yes know? yeah mary you were nodding a lot so you do you have feelings on the raft oh, i do i love the raft but I'll, I'll be honest and this is maybe an unpopular opinion um, my first exposure to it was the adaptation in Creepshow and maybe for the campy fun of it, it got me to go back and read that whole collection. And, and, and you're right. I mean, in, in having read the story, uh, the, the adaptation misses an awful lot, mm. but the adaptation was, it was fun, you know, and, and but yeah, it, it's definitely, it became one of, one of my favorite stories, not because it was so, you know, technically or evocatively brilliant, but more because it was just, it was old fashioned, just can't be hard, just, you know, kids getting into trouble, uh, doing something they're not supposed to, and then they run into a monster. And I, 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 I've always liked it for that. I've always just appreciated that um, that it it was fun like that. But the story does deal with, I think, more complexity between the, like relationships between the characters than the movie actually ever touches on. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right. Uh, I think we're next going to go with uh, Mary. Your number one. Okay, my number one. 
And uh, again, this is a story that I, I picked as my number one because it is probably one of my favorite short stories of all time. And also because I think there, there's a significance to the horror genre because of it. And that's Haunter of the Dark by H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, it appeared in Weird Tales in 1936 and has been since recollected in, uh, I would say almost every Lovecraft collection because of the kind of story it is. And it, it, I, it, it's one of my favorites because it has all the things in it that I love about cosmic horror. I would even venture to say that it is the reason why I, I think I, I fell for cosmic horror in the first place. It's got the, the ancient tomes, you know, the, the Necronomicon. It also has his, you know, uh, books created by his friends. It has a really cool monster and it has, you know, a bit of mystery in uh, what happens to the main character, Robert Blake. And uh, it just, it has a little bit of everything. It's got, uh, you know, superstitious townsfolk. It's got a cult. It's got a creepy church. And, and it has a building sense of dread. It's, it's amazing how when the main character, from the time the main character finds the church to the time the main character gets to the very, very top room of the church, how the dread sort of builds in this subtle way. You almost don't even notice that you're, you're getting more and more and more tense as he's getting closer and closer to the, the apex of this church and of, of what he finds there and how it sort of un, how it unravels certain things and reveals certain things as he gets to the top. And that's only like the first part of the story. The rest of it is this impending doom, like where you're waiting for the other horror shoe to drop uh, because you know the sponsor's coming. You know that whatever uh, whatever took place in that church has, has set this monster free, that there's very little that is keeping it from attacking people and that very little uh, that is that is protecting the townspeople isn't going to be there for long because of an impending storm. And what I like about it from a, uh, from a, a, a sort of, uh, I was going to say a hereditary point of view, but that's not the word I'm looking for. The basically from the the tradition that has been passed on through the through the genre from a a uh, inherited point of view, I guess, is that you've got a character. I mean, who you've got actually a whole tradition that sort of springs up between this story, which is a middle story in a loosely loosely defined trilogy of short stories. Uh, that started with Robert Block. You know, Robert Block wrote The Shambler from the Stars and then and where he killed off a Lovecraft type character and then Lovecraft wrote this story where he killed off a Robert Block type, type character and then I believe Robert Block wrote a story subsequent to this which was a sort of a sequel and I think that that there's something significant in that there's something I think that this these stories sort of set up a tradition for turning fiction uh, into a mythology and, and turning uh, the, the power particularly of horror fiction into something that almost transcends fiction and goes into like urban legend. Um, and partly it was because I don't think Lovecraft cared if people played in the sandbox basically um, and allowed for this this building of myth, which uh, because so many people contributed to it, I think 
really blurs the line between what we know to be absolutely positively fiction and what has become a sort of modern myth. Uh, I know that there are people out there that believe the Necronomicon is a real book, that it existed somewhere at some time. And, and the funny thing is that most of us who, who know otherwise don't really discourage that. <laughs> you know, a lot of people don't discourage that because there, it, it, it makes the horror fiction transcendent in a way. And I think that this story being sort of sandwiched right in between the other two stories is what I think of as sort of a, um, a, a guidepost or a, a you know, a, like a lighthouse kind of light in the dark of fiction that stands above and, and shows the power that horror fiction can have over time. A legacy, that was the word I was thinking of, that it, mm. it, it created a legacy of transcendent horror fiction. Well, and it's interesting too, because Lovecraft has, you know, I mean, the Lovecraft Film Fest was happening just this weekend in Portland, right? And, um, you know, you have this, even though p people know that there's a lot of shady parts of Lovecraft's, you know, mm -hmm. beliefs and things like that, his impact is still so strong because, um, you know, that legacy is there mm -hmm. still yes. uh, th through all that, um, you know, <laughs> and when we're, we're finding too, you know, with a lot of these problematic figures, we're looking at, for example, like Isaac Asimov, how people found out that you know, it was a well-known thing that he uh, was very grabby and not mm -hmm. cool to, to the ladies. And so now we're reckoning with learning, you know, this about him. And mm -hmm. so with all these classic authors, it, it's, I, I think if you just separate, when you separate the art from the artist and you look at the impact that, that Lovecraft had, uh, this, this story that you picked, for example, being in that legacy of being part of the um, the back and forth with, with Robert Block of the uh, the Lovecraft circle, it sort of kicked off that kind of yeah yeah. When we when we were interviewing Betsy Wolheim, she pulled out a handwritten letter that she still has from Lovecraft to her father, um, and yeah. it's like one of those things when you think it's easy to forget uh, mm -hmm. that Lovecraft was a human being at all you know mm -hmm. that was writing these letters the good and the bad you know that he that these letters were written they were handwritten by someone mm -hmm. and i think it was a huge foundational thing for me when she held up this letter and we could look at his handwriting and i know brian and were you there too when, when i was there too yep. yeah when you guys got, went through the papers that had to be mm -hmm. to see those there in front of you must have been just an amazing thing so um, any, anybody, anything else on Lovecraft before we get to Laird's number one? No, just listening to what you guys are saying and it, it is becoming tougher, but in the case of, you know, to separate art from artists, all that, whether you even yeah. should, but I will say this, it's far easier when they're dead and have no estate for us to separate. That makes it easier for me. True. Yeah. You're not contributing to that. You're not contributing to a direct legacy. You're contributing. It's easier to look at the ideas and go, okay. Mm -hmm. I, I said once long ago that because I've written a, a lot of Lovecraftian stuff, I said, but my my take on it is to look past him and look at what he yes. was looking at. I try to imagine nothing. Nothing's nascent. Oh, the only thing that's nascent about an artist is their interpretation of of, of input of, of data. 
of stimulation or stimuli. Lovecraft didn't invent anything. Lovecraft interpreted his world and what you get is a filter. So my tactic has always been, and what I recommend to other people, don't throw out, don't throw out Lovecraft, even if he's, you know, if you can't even stomach him. But if you're interested in cosmic horror, look at what he was looking at, Danzani and the Bible, mm -hmm. for example, the Mahabharata. There's cosmic horror is an ancient, is an ancient concept. So I would I would just toss that out. I, I would agree. And hopefully you can hear me. I switched. Uh, I hear you. You actually sound okay. better now. Oh, good. Well, I wish I would have known that because I'd be using this for video court instead of my headphones. Um, yeah, I, I think that the legacy and I think you have to accept that legacy of what he started because, I mean, uh, um, what's his name? I forgot the author's name. Ballad of Black Tom you know, that came out a mm -hmm. couple of years ago. I, yeah, yeah. Of course, I think that legacy. He always yeah. gets mentioned. Yeah, it, <laughs> yeah, but it brings it, it it brings it full circle. We wouldn't have what we would have today if not for uh, Lovecraft's writing in that in that kickoff between his circle, the circle of Lovecraft, whatever you want to call it. Regardless of of you know Lovecraft's ideas, it I mean you take the good with the bad. Yeah, it was bad. Don't get me wrong, uh, but but it's there. Uh, back to what Mary said about some people accepting some of the Lovecraftian stuff for real. I ran into, I was with a friend of mine, we were at a convention and we saw this artist who had drawn a picture. He had painted a picture of the mad Arab and Lovecraft sort of looking at this book and, and uh, of the Necronomicon. And, and I go, that's pretty interesting. And the guy goes, it's interesting because in, I, I can't tell if it was a joke or not. I tend to believe he was being a hundred percent honest when he <laughs> oh, goes, here we go. because they didn't live at the same time. And I go, Okay, <laughs> and that was it. I mean, he believed the Mad Arab was a real person, wrote the Necronomicon, and we're done. Okay. See, I, for me, and 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 I, I and that's good in some I, ways. You know, I, and it, it is. I mean, that aspect of Lovecraft's work, I I find sort of fascinating that that people that they do they do riff on it, everything from pastiche to parody, and like like. Like we were saying, you know, he's he is a person who had some incredibly awful views. I I believe a lot of them, and this is not an excuse. I believe a lot of them were uh, uh, xenophobia and and a fear of change, which was so pervasive in his personality uh, mm, that totally. it was yeah. it was crippling to yeah. you know. But I think that um, see, I I struggle with this because I I think his I think you wouldn't have had that deep sense of, of fear of the other without a man who genuinely was afraid of the other. Uh, but what I think of as the legacy too is not that we can, that we have to rehash his version, his view, like Laird said, his perspective of what the other is, but that we can evolve cosmic horror, that we can reclaim it and rework it and make it something that isn't stagnant and that doesn't die on the vine because of this man's stilted approach, but rather be something that can um, evolve as we evolve and still keep the, the basic tenets of what, what makes cosmic horror scary. And it is great that so many black authors have done a really great job 
of of translating uh, Lovecraft, a Ballad of Black Tom by Victor Laval, but also this year, M.K. Jemison's The City We Become, mm-hmm. uh, just really um, is, I, it's kind of a spoiler that it's Lovecraftian, but I think that if you read The Dust Jacket, you can kind of figure it out. Um, but that book too, like, if, you know, she's she won the Hugo three times in a row and is in conversation with Lovecraft in her most recent novel. And, you know, that, that's a, that's a big thing. So that's, and what Mary what Mary says is right though, without a guy so flawed to the point where he was almost paranoid with his xenophobia, you're not getting this cosmic horror. I mean, you're not, you could, you could take, you know, the, the whole, his famous quote, the fear of the unknown and just insert any, foreign nationality in that and and for someone who's deeply prejudiced it, it it's there it's it's horrible it's foundational but that's what formed what he came up with right uh yeah it's it, it's it's well, it's look. hard to reconcile right but but i agree with laird and mm-hmm. i well i agree with mary i mean it was it, it's easy to say that was the times we were in but if you think about those times yeah, I mean, I mean he, he had yeah, I mean he even had extreme views for his time. Yeah, he which did. I think made made people uncomfortable. But and, and Laird is absolutely right that there are certain aspects of you know things that inspired him were much older than you oh, know, yeah. he did rip a lot a lot off from mythology to begin with. But uh I think I think it, I think if you're to read Lovecraft now and appreciate Lovecraft's work for itself then I, I think the reason why it still works was not because he was a horrific racist, but because he was genuinely afraid of the things he was writing about. I would Which agree. Which is kind of why I think The Exorcist works, because Blatty is, was genuinely believed in, you know, the, the Roman Catholic tenets uh, uh, that included, you know, possession and exorcism. And, um, it, but it is, it, it, it's a constant struggle, especially if you're a person who writes cosmic horror all the time. Um, I mean, even in Haunter of the Dark, I mean, he's, there's, there's, some, there's some questionable stuff in there. I mean, he doesn't say the nicest things about Italians who are my peeps, you know? <laughs> he doesn't say <laughs> the nicest things about women, but I- Well, look, I, I just broke down, I just did our 30th Philip K. Dick novel, and I've learned a lot of unpleasant things about Philip K. Dick during- in the process of of doing this podcast, but I, it doesn't mean that I don't see the value in what we're doing and sure. and and and, and, yeah. and doing it. So um, now another science. Now the last two are both science fiction writers as well. Um, um, so Laird. Uh, now this author is somebody who John Shirley um, gave me a, a brow beating for having not read this author, and I fixed that uh 15 years ago but you're number one yeah jack vance i think pound for pound he can hold his own or whip everybody on this list um whatever uh objectively i feel that way i feel he's like a a supreme writer in general but he specialized in a certain baroque fantasy uh but every now and then he delved into horror and for my money, the best, this isn't the best horror story 
that I could have picked the best I think the best horror story and I almost picked it but I already had too many classical stories on here as far as I was concerned uh, is to build a fire by Jack London I don't think there's a better horror story than that I don't think there's necessarily a better cosmic horror story than that uh, because it encapsulates the the nature which is the entire universe is indifference to finite carbon-based life forms um but enough about that I, I will say one other thing it is funny that you guys talking about the raft because the raft and to build a fire actually do share a very central conceit and that is oh i'll get out of this i'll just build mm -hmm. a fire we'll get out of this you distract it and i'll go swim in other words all the hope seems to in the light of day everything seems like it's going pretty well and it can be this situation can be rectified it's only after a little while you realize that you were you were just absolutely screwed from the start mm -hmm. but vance's story uh is leanne the wayfarer which uh, appeared in dying earth it was collected in dying earth I, I included it uh because a i think it's just chilling and a, a really clever clever horror story it's also i think the only dark fantasy horror story on my list and it's um but it's also sort of in a science fictional background. The Dying Earth is, you know, a, a hybrid between those two, between those two ideas. Uh, also, it's the only, I think it's the only one on my list that, that involves a serial killer. Because uh, Leanne is this beautiful, or Leanne, I always pronounce it uh, with, with the E on the end. But he is this beautiful bard, uh, ladies man, uh, who is diabolically evil. He is like satanically evil. Uh, he meets people and murders them, um, takes their stuff, rapes them, whatever he wants to do. And of course, Vance is very genteel in his description. So he lets, you know, a lot of its implication. But essentially what happens is, is uh, old Oliane is just like one of the worst people on the planet. He runs into this, like a witch of the grove or dryad of the grove type of thing. And he has to have her, but he runs to grab her and she managed to escape into her little cottage that has sort of magically appeared in this glade. And he knows that if he, that's booby trapped. And, and Vance always has these fantastical uh, descriptions for things. Like he would be pierced in a thousand places by the great lances that would come out of the needles that would come out of her house. So she says, you can have me, but you need to do a chore for me. And she had been exiled from her homeland and she's trying to rebuild this tapestry. And you can go get me, if you can go get me a, a golden thread or even bring me the other half of my tapestry, you know, uh, that would be great. And he goes, where is it? And, and she and she tells him that, you know, this dude, this dude in this ancient ruins, Chun, uh, is holding on to it. He's this terrible person, but you should be able to handle him, a clever guy like yourself. So off he goes. And I won't ruin the story. It's it's it, because it digresses quite a bit along the way. He finds this hoop. It's like a ring. It's a magic ring. And but it can expand. And when you drop it down over yourself, you're in a you can actually pick it back up and you're in an altered dimension. Like you're completely self-contained. You put it on the ground, step in it, pull it back up over yourself and you're outside again. It shrinks down to a ring. And he's like, oh, this could come in handy. Mm -hmm. uh, and off he goes to go to go retrieve, uh, you know, this tapestry. So I'll, I'll leave I'll leave it at, or the, excuse me, the other half of the tapestry. And so I'll leave it at that. But it's um, it's it's amusing. He's one of the rare authors and, and Roald Dahl, go back to Roald Dahl. He, he possesses this ability, this light touch to say things with a smile that are, uh, that are suggestive of the worst traits of man mm -hmm. or beast. Mm. Yeah. Uh, speaking of John Shirley, uh, Jack Vance is like his childhood favorite author mm. and his 
he just released a fantasy novel that is so jack vance it's it's his like loving tribute to um to jack vance and yeah yeah michael shea did the same thing he got his permission to do a a sequel to one of his novels so yeah yeah and um um well john's is, is his original world but it's very it's very very influenced but what i will say too is what you're talking i know the story you're talking about because it was the Dying Earth books are are they're kind of sold and marketed as novels a lot of times, but they're but he wrote these stories serialized through various science fiction magazines, and many of them stand on their own. Um, it, and- but it, yeah, absolutely. It has, and that story, uh, Leanne the Wayfarer, has one of the greatest lines. It's not the end line by any means. It's just a line in the story that's one of the most chilling you'll ever hear. And it's, "I'm Chun, the unavoidable." Like that, I I say that all the time when somebody annoys me. I just live around <laughs> trying to be unavoidable. They're like, oh god! I'll tell my friends who've read it. So uh, yeah, absolutely. Dying Earth. You should just read Dying Earth. It's an easy absolutely. It's an easy yeah. entry point into into Vance. Yeah. For some reason I ne- I never read Dying Earth, but Demon Princes. Those novels are aren't they great? Some of my favorite. And they have the, and they have are my favorites. Oh yeah. Some of the best hand to hand combat I've ever read. I don't care even whether the level of, of the realism is just the, the combat the because every now and then he'll have a hand-to-hand scene and they are just spectacular because he was a military guy so it, i'm sure he's it, yeah <clears throat> yeah he he um the it's interesting because when amazon paid that bazillion dollars to do lord of the rings right or to do a new series of lord of the rings and everyone kept saying like there's so many other fantasy works that you could do uh, one of the things, you know, John and I had this whole conversation about, like, just imagine if they were smart enough to pick up the Dying Earth books and 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 get the right person to adapt it. But absolutely, yeah, or the Star Kings, the, the or, yeah, the, the either, yeah, or, or or do a proper treatment of Earthsea, um, you know, and the and and but to do Lord of the Rings again, you know, when we could do that, yeah, it's it's unfortunate. Mark, you're going to close us out because this was Mary's number 10. Um, and then um, and it's it's interesting that uh, of all human beings we end with, freaking Harlan. All right. Um, I, first of all, I'm going to tell anyone who has not read this story, I'm going to tell you not to read this story. I'm going to tell you to seek out the Harlan Ellison audiobook version of this story. because there's something about harlan reading harlan you can just feel the angst and the anger and the and the crotchetiness and especially coming through this story again this is a story of body horror but it's even more than that it's it's you know going back to what laird just said about the we'll get out of this at no point in this story uh which is i have no mouth and i must scream is anyone saying we'll get out of this no. <laughs> because it's just hopeless, Mary? I, I don't know if you'd agree, but you just feel like uh, this is just yeah. It's just ho- it's a hopeless I, situation. It takes place in the future after World War Three. Mm-hmm. There were like three computers called well, they were called a- they're called AM now AM, but they were I think they were. They were various things. Uh, they were supercomputers. There was one in China, one in Russia, one in America. And after the war, they kind of all got together, like uh, like um, 
uh, what's it called, Skynet, basically, mm -hmm. and decided, hey, you know what? We're better than these humans. And for some reason, it kept five people around. And it just toys with them for hundreds of years. And it's able to be omnipresent, um, omniscient. It's got, evidently, it can recreate reality. It can change the physical and mental states of people. It turns one person into like a simian. It turns one person uh, who was gay into a heterosexual. It's just, it just messes with people, this computer on a, mm -hmm. on a level that is beyond cruel. I mean, it is. And, and that's the horror in it in the very end of the story. And I don't want to give it away, but there's a quote where he explains the, the narrator explains what the computer has done to him. And he's been largely untouched, but at the very end, it's one of the most horrific images when you read the paragraph mm -hmm. that I've ever that I've ever heard described. And I hope there's never an adaption of it. <laughs> and there might already be an adaption somewhere, but I hope there's, I mean, there was a computer game, but I hope there's never an adaption of it because I want my imagination focused on that description. Uh, yeah. And I just find it one of the most horrific paragraphs in all of literature. Uh, I agree. I um, Most horror stories, I think, at least most that I can think of are, are predicated on the idea that there at least is the appearance of hope uh, until there isn't. And, you know, and then the horror exists in the fact that, oh no, all this time you were really screwed and you didn't know it. This horror story, like Mark said, there never is any hope. And you know that going in, it's almost, which would make it almost a, a very heavy read to begin with. But, um, I think what, what bothered was definitely, definitely the end, definitely the end. Um, and I think in, 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 and I'm not as well versed in science fiction, but I know that there's, there's some science fiction that basically deals what would, with what would happen if uh, computers gained some, some form of sentience and, and, and beyond just the ability you know, intellectually to, to cognitively process things. And you know, having worked, the, right. yeah, the and for having worked with um, the uh, Institute of Electronics and Electrical Engineers, I was uh, their uh, one of their editors. So I and I worked on the robotics journal, and so I saw a lot of what they were talking about, like how they do develop AI. It's actually kind of funny too that they they go by Asimov's laws of robotics in real robotics to make sure that these 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 robots don't ever take over. The planet or anything but um it's it's one thing to ponder what would happen if the robotics ever gained a sense of self self-awareness a soul it's another thing to wonder what would happen if they gained like a deity kind of level a godlike kind of level uh because we would assume that the horror would stem from the fact that uh they would be unmoved by emotion or impassioned response that everything would be super logical. And yet, like Mark said, the, this God, this God robot God is cruel. And I think the thing that got me was that it felt like Ellison was saying um, that the evolution of this kind of cold indifference, this robotic indifference isn't, 
logic, but sadism. That the, the, the highest evolution of, of a thing like this would be something that develops a sense of cruelty and enjoys it. And I, and I always thought that was really kind of, kind of terrifying because it may be you, you can fight something that only thinks logically by reasoning with it with logic, but you can't fight sadism because there is no logic behind sadism. Cruelty and intellect are conjoined. The smartest, the cruelest animals in nature have a tendency to be the smartest. Yes. The, the more they're like us, the more that they're capable. They don't always exhibit that, but, but they're capable of it. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So then, it goes, it goes to, it stands, if, if you were going to simulate intellect as a, as a machine, you would almost by default have to simulate uh, cruelty. And that's terrifying because that would mean that any power above us, anything that we would think of as a God would then almost scientifically have to be a real son of a bitch, you know, <laughs> like a really evil, sadistic kind of, kind of being. And, and I've always and found it, that. It, and who better to write a mean computer than Harlan Ellison? <laughs> I'm not going to lie. His story was number 10 because he's Harlan Ellison. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's a, he's a jerk. And David told me a great story where he met Harlan Ellison. Uh, yeah. Well, I have three meeting Harlan Ellison stories and all three of them are, are hilarious. So, so we have Lovecraft, but, but we have Ellison. No, we need to go with our corners and think about why Lovecraft why? is okay. But Ellison is, he's not been dead long enough is my point. And he hasn't escaped. Exactly. Exactly. I, I, mean, I, I will say this about the computer and what you said is exactly right, Laird and, and Mary. There is that level of cruelty, but then it goes even a little bit farther than just being cruel. Him being cruel is, again, the computer, he turned a gay man or heterosexual. He made a girl who was, by all, she claimed to be chaste. He made her basically a sex object by her own desire, according to the book, right? Uh, he may, he changed an older man and he changed his name. He, he played with these people in a very cruel way, but at the very end, it's not just cruelty. It's now cruelty mixed with punishment because, and I don't want to, again, give away the end of the story, but there's something that happens that makes him punish the narrator of the of the mm -hmm. book. So it's not just cruelty for cruelty's sake. Now it's you've now really made me mad, and I'm yeah. going to show you yeah. what I'm really going to do to you. Yeah, and I need. To, I, yeah, it's a great story. It, it, I mean, and I think one of the reasons why Harlan was such a great short story writer, but not really a great novelist, is because he was so impatient with his ideas as well. Too, like he, he, I don't, I, you know, but. Hey, if you want a, a, an author who looks at the singularity in really interesting ways, but has a little bit kinder heart, um, uh, Rudy Rutger uh, has written several novels on the singularity and um, his software, there's four books, I don't know, uh, Quadrilogy, uh, or if you call it that, but um, the software, wetware, hardware, that those books are phenomenal. And um, Rudy uh, is a really sweet guy too. Uh, <laughs> uh, but just to give like uh, a good guy, uh, a little promo. A little there. boost. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but, but, but I would but say, as, go ahead. Uh, I was gonna say, as Mary said, again, a God 
I mean, if, if you look at our, our history with religion in the sense of the religious beliefs, the Judeo-Christian Bible and all of that, yeah, look, I'm Jewish. I'll be the first one to tell you. Old Testament God, he is the son of a bitch, right? He punishes. I mean, there's and there's very little mercy, and that is exactly what Harlan Ellison puts on the page. Again, read the thing, listen to him, but that one of those final paragraphs, man, I mean, I... On my notes for today, I wrote the whole final paragraph out just because it's just brutal. This is a brutal yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and it's a story that deserves all the attention and it, that it gets. It's, it's you know, regardless of, um, you know, how many times I've watched Harlan make um, organizers of conventions cry. <laughs> um, <laughs> but... Uh, yeah. uh, I... <laughs> I have seen it happen with I mean, my have, own eyes. But you brought, yeah, when um, I when I talked to you last year, David, about these this idea of doing this podcast after your novel podcast, I think I said I got really excited about this, and I think I sent you my list like immediately afterwards, and you laughed. And you go, "We're not doing this for a while." And I said, "Okay," <laughs> but 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 my number one story did not change, and I reread all of these stories just thinking, "All right, let's move some stuff around," and I did move some things around. It's still the most horrific story to me it, it yeah i i agree and i also agree with laird that i think <laughs> i think it, it's it's a it's a, a a matter of distance um having met harlan once he he put me off a little bit but i can't deny that the man is good he was good at what he did and thankfully i never had to meet lovecraft but you're right. It is. It's it's a matter of distance. So maybe. <laughs> Look, I never met him. I just know that he was a jerk. So there you go. So, to <laughs> well, put he, politely. he can be really kind to people too. Ask Octavia Butler. Yeah. 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 Like Harlan um, was foundational for her career and she considered Harlan to be a saint, you know, just because of their, their situation. Um, you know, uh, John Shirley recently told me a story that um, on our on this podcast about how uh, and I had to get more clarification, but um, so just he told a funny story about dropping acid and like climbing in a tree at Clarion and throwing things at Harlan. So he got lots of good revenge. Um, <laughs> like for, for years, I guess Harlan was mad at John Shirley because he climbed in a tree and threw things at him. So. That can make you feel better. Um, but let's go around, close things out. Um, I, you know, um, Mary and Laird, I want you to be able to tell people how they can find your work. Um, but also just uh, sum up for, for the people who listen to this as short story authors who wanted to get a glimpse into, um, you know, what they can learn from this list, from your, your list in particular, um like kind of something summing it up mark you want to start us off you know i all i can say is i was really looking forward to this today i've written a huge amount of notes just because i as david mentioned i'm, I'm a huge zoner fan I, I feel just honored to be here uh i i still kind of feel like i'm probably not the person who should have done this but that's okay um it, it's been fantastic hey, and and again i called on I, you for a reason i know i love the discussion and uh you know i'll 
you can't find me anywhere. I'm just a guy who works in a government courtroom. So, you know, whatever. <laughs> well, they could get arrested to find you, but no, they really can't. Look, I used to do that. Now I just deal with like the drainage ditches and stuff, which is kind of boring. But again, thank you very much for the opportunity to be here. I've, I've good to meet you. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And if I'm ever honored to be in your guys' presence again, it would be my pleasure. Yeah, oh, likewise. Uh, yeah, Mark, uh, you did a great job. Thank you for joining us today. Mary, um, sum it up. Oh, again, I want to echo Mark. Thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. And I was really, you know, honored to be on, on this panel. Uh, uh, I think what you could, to, to answer your question, I think what you could get out of this list, I, I I tend to favor cosmic horror, but I basically like any kind of supernatural horror that really gets to the psychology of um, humanity to understand why the supernatural story, like why that the supernatural antagonist is scary. You know, I like the scary stuff. I like the stuff that has a, like an emotional, you know, gut punch. And I think that those, the stories that, that, that we talked about, I think, um, I think they have that. And if you want to find me, all the books I currently have available are on Amazon. If you want a nice, neat, tidy little list, you can look at marysangiovanni.com. I know it's a big, long Italian last name, but if you put in Mary, S-A-N-G-I, I should pop up. <laughs> so. Right. Hey, and tell Brian he did a good job being quiet and, and not interjecting his opinions. I'm very um, proud welcome. of him. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very proud of him. He just ruined everything. <laughs> Well, you know he was over there dying, wanting to say no. Oh, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. <laughs> you know he was dying. Every like at least a couple of those stories, he was just like, "Oh my god, I want to say something." But, I, I don't know if you can hear, but there were the occasional mutterings, but they were very quiet and respectful. I thought, where he wanted to, he wanted to add his two cents. Yeah, well, now I know. feel even worse about myself on this panel <laughs> <laughs> because I know that Brian Keene was listening to me. Uh, well, hey, no, I, I got to say, um, uh, you know, there were many, many people who would have been worthy of this panel. So it was very, but I, for very specific reasons, I chose who I did. And um, yeah, so, but you know, Brian, you did a great job. I would have loved to have heard your opinion on some of them. So <laughs> you might. Uh, yeah. yeah, just you wait. He's like, I'll, I'll get revenge. I'll do my own. <laughs> um <laughs> in the comment section yeah <laughs> laird yeah, yeah just this is for this is for brian first of all read brian kane but also i know that he's a big jack ketchum fan and jack ketchum mm -hmm. could have yeah. been on this list a bunch of times there are a lot of people that could have been on this list but ketchum I, I suspect yeah. that's one of Brian, what Brian would have selected to catch him. So Absolutely. I, I, got, I actually have to get the hell out of here. I'm actually running late for something else. So let me just say really quickly, we didn't touch what you should get out of this panel is we did not touch to, to the Jack Ketchum example. Mm -hmm. We didn't even scratch the surface of yeah. not only good writers, but essential writers. Yeah. So take that. If you take anything away from this, this is just a tiny primer. This is the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. Uh, you can find me uh, on Twitter and Facebook under my name. And with that, I'm going to bid you all a good evening. And thank you so much for having me on. Thank you, Laird. Thank, thank you, you very Laird. much. It was great to meet you. All right. Yeah. Good night, guys.